Hey guys, welcome back to the Vicious Cycle Podcast. Real long one tonight, but well worth it if uh, you're interested in the uh, current state of the Hawaiian fisheries, if you're interested about the history of the fisheries and how foreign crew and uh, imports entered our uh, our fishery all the way from the origins, right from the, uh, from the first time that... Uh, gassed fish was discovered to the first time foreign crew entered our fleet and how we got to where we were today. Um, this episode was done down on the uh, Pier 38 here in Honolulu, tied up on the vicious, uh, I'm sorry, the vicious cycle, uh, tied up on the double D, uh, not the vicious cycle, my boat, uh, on the double D. And uh, even right now, uh, after wrapping up here, I'm watching a uh, barge that's been brought here from New York uh, to dredge out the harbor. And one thing that I noticed across the five hours that I was down here, there wasn't one giant hammer grab that I saw that didn't have human waste of some form, plastic, ropes, hoses, uh, one plastic bag after another. Just the last 25 years or whatever it's been since they dredged in here of uh, human waste not just from the fishing boats here, but honestly from the city, for anyone who's gone in and out of here. And it kind of makes you a little bit sad to be a human. You know, you, you just, it's amazing that we have this beautiful ocean resource and it is completely full of garbage. And, and that alone uh, kind of gets you thinking. As you can hear the big crane working in the background, taking one scoop after another out of the water, even the last one I just saw had like a giant rug or something hanging. And uh, makes me really wonder, you know, they're filling up this barge with, uh, with the soil from, the, from the, uh, the spoils from dredging. And I wonder, is that barge just going to get dumped back into the ocean? Or does that actually go into a landfill? That I don't know. But that I'd like to find out. But I've been watching this thing going for hours and hours. And it is just lots and lots of trash coming into it. Really sad, actually. It makes you kind of question sometimes our interaction with uh, with nature and uh, the way we treat our planet. I think this episode uh, is perfectly fitting with the time. Um, many of you guys have probably seen the Seaspiracy uh, uh, documentary that is now trending on uh, Netflix. And uh, it's getting a lot of exposure and rightly so. I've been getting lots and lots of questions about it and I wanted to address it. People say, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And I hate to say it, it's the most accurate, it's the most accurate uh, documentary I've ever seen about the commercial fishing industry, uh, particularly when it comes to the governing bodies, uh, the corruption, uh, the, uh, the mislabeling, um, the the environmental groups. Uh, if you haven't seen Seaspiracy, it's actually worth a watch. Uh, hard for me to believe that I'm saying that because normally anti-fishing things um, would be against my agenda, but the truth is there is a lot of great information that people should know. Um, the, the outtake from that is that they are pushing a complete plant-based diet, which I don't agree with totally whatsoever. Um, I don't think being vegan is the solution. But I, I do believe that traceability, uh, honoring fish, 
and really knowing where the fish are coming from is important. Um, anyone who knows me knows that I'm not anti-fishing, but I'm very pro-sustainability. And not just the word sustainability being loosely thrown around, but truly the definition of, uh, of, of what that means. So um, the takeaway from that is supposed to be don't eat fish. But I think if I have a takeaway from that, I would say don't eat fish that you don't truly know where it comes from. I think that that's probably one thing that's been lost in our culture and just over time is that we've gotten too far away from our food source. And so I think it's really important that you get fish from reputable places. Um, and this, this, this just perfectly ties into what I've been saying all along about really building up a market to reward the people that are doing it correctly and get away from the idea of seafood being a, uh, a cheap uh, resource. So folks, it's a long one, but I hope you enjoy it. Uh, Joe is a very, very character, colorful character. And uh, I've known Joe a long time. And uh, this is a little bit more of a somber Joe. This is, uh, this, is, uh, this is Joe being very real, being very honest about the state of our fisheries and how we got here. So I hope you enjoy it. I certainly did. And uh, I hope you enjoy the following. Aloha. Hey guys, welcome back to the Vicious Cycle podcast. Uh, today's episode is coming from the helm of the fishing vessel Double D and its renowned captain, Joe Dentling. And uh, Joe is one of the longest running fishermen, if not definitely the longest running fishermen on the Cross Seamount. And uh, today I wanted to take the time to interview him and kind of let people know his story. Uh, he's a person that's been really influential in my life and uh, probably knows the story of the Cross Sea Mountain better than anyone. So, folks, here's Joe. Want to introduce yourself, Joe, and tell us a little bit about how you got to be uh, on the Cross Sea Mountain. Okay, well, it's an easy story. I had a boat company in San Diego County, and uh, one day a fireman from Laguna Beach came in to my boat shop and said his brother was an aquarium fish collector on the Kona Coast. And uh, I was building a 26-foot diesel skiff with 453 turbo inboard Detroit diesels. Oh, back in, I'm trying to think, 1970 or 71, a long time ago. And uh, he, he wanted to buy one for his brother, so I built one to his specifications for his brother Norman in Kona. And I put it on a trailer, we loaded the trailer on a Matson flat rack container and shipped it to uh, the Big Island. And then um, I uh, subsequently, uh, when the boat got there and he was fishing it, Norman invited me over to go out on the boat and do some of the local style fishing, which at the time was uh, Nighttime Ikashibi for big tuna, uh, daytime aquarium collections. So this was well, like 45 years ago. So, uh, well, Kona was a lot different. Of course, Hawaii was a lot different then. We had no longline fleet to speak of with mono lines. We were, we had a diminishing tarred line fleet, which I believe were setting less than 300 hooks a set. We had the Leslie family. 
out of Kealakua Bay on the big island and one or two guys long lining with a tarred rope out of Hilo and maybe less than 20 boats out of Honolulu. So uh, at the time I was there, I met a guy named Jerry Kenny and he partnered up with Grandpa Frank Goto. Of course, he was a young man then and <laughs> I was a kid, I wasn't even 30. And uh, he said, we are having a problem getting enough fish to keep the Honolulu fish auction open. And at that time, the fish auction was in Kiwala Bay, and there was a Coral Sea tuna cannery in Coral in in, in, uh, in Kiwala Basin at the time. And there was an ice plant there, and they had the fish auction. They had the Aku fleet bringing boats to the cannery, and then they had the diminishing local fishing fleet plus the uh, the tarred uh, longline fleet. But not really longline, I'm talking 275 to 300 hooks. Anyhow, so they're, they're really, they really, it's, it costs overhead and money. And, and back in those days, when we were checking auction prices, in, in any given 10-day period, there was probably three or four days where there wasn't a single fish on the auction floor. So what what Frank Goto and Jerry Kenny did, they liked the diesel 26-foot boat I built. They uh, brought uh, Senator Inouye into the conversation. And they said, Senator, we, we need money. What we want to do is we want to build up the local Kona fleet of the younger upcoming fishermen. And we want to, we built this little ice house, Volcano Isle Fish, and we've arranged a DC-3 three or four times a week to fly fish out of Kona back to Honolulu to put on the Honolulu launch. And uh, we need money for these young kids. It's not, it's not a grant, it's a loan. They'll re we want a guarantee for the loan to get the money from government and we'll, we'll, we'll build the younger qualified fishermen some better boats bigger fish boxes, more reliable, so they can do more porpoise chasing, ikashibi. Ikashibi was a big thing then, especially in the winter time when you could ikashibi and big eye schools then would come in and, you know, like one in the morning, gee, the big eye schools would come in around your boat. They were like 180 to 280 pound size. They were monsters, right? The very first one I ever caught the very first one I ever caught off Kona was 135 pounds back in the 70s and it went to the Honolulu auction and after the air freight, Honolulu auction fee, Volcano Isle fish, 10% fee, I still got $5.75 a pound for it. What year was that? Uh, God. I think 1977. 1977? Yeah. And the price per pound was $5 and? That was, I, I caught that fish on Thanksgiving. I went fishing Thanksgiving night, and then I brought it in the next day, which was a Friday morning, put it on Volcano Isle Fish Ice House, and it was on the auction Monday. It, and it went on the auction for $5.75. With inflation, that would be like how much more than today's price is? <laughs> I don't know. It would be like getting 20 or $25 for a fish now. Isn't that amazing? Well, what was amazing about it, I fished that week, and... <laughs> This has a little bit to do with the funniness of real estate prices. In one week fishing, I earned enough money to buy a two-acre two lot 
on Upper Polani Road in Kona and buy the supplies to put in a dra driveway and build a garage in, in seven days of fishing. Wow. To give you a comparison, not a money comparison. But how things have changed. The value of the fish versus what you could accomplish. So, yeah, so uh, what I did after I built boats, I built boats for seven years, and then I came to Kona, and I, I liked Norman. I saw the scene there. I says, you know what? I'm tired of building boats in San Diego. So I sold that company. I had, like, eight acres of land it was on in San Diego County. I just sold all that shit. Got rid of everything and uh, bought a one-ton Dooley Chevy truck, built myself a 26-foot boat, came to Kona, and, and that Thanksgiving was one of my first fishing trips. Ikashibi for Big Eye. So that was the beginning of the Big Eye run off of Kona. And I'll tell you, I saw Big Eye between then and New Year's up to 280 pounds. Monsters. Ikashibi coming off Kona at the time. Yeah, they were nice fish. Proper big fish. So so that was that was how I got to meet uh, uh, Frank Goto, Grandpa I call him, senior. How I got to meet Senator Inouye. When he, you know, when he was in the prime of his career. What was interesting is Frank Goto, Sr., and Senator Inouye knew each other their whole lives. Now, for people at home who don't know, Frank Goto established the fish auction in Honolulu, correct? No, he took over management of it. But he, was, he started there shoveling ice in his 20s, working the floor. I had no idea. And he worked for the Otanis, but he... He had a good communication level, but he not only had good communication level, he was a, uh, I don't know what they call it. He was in the same U.S. military. He, he grew up with Senator Inouye. So he was in the same Japanese, American Japanese military unit with Senator Inouye in World War II. So they were grade school, high school, war buddies. So when when Frank said, gee whiz, we don't have enough fish to keep the auction going, it wasn't not a difficult thing now that Senator Inouye had been around and you know for a few years and was you know was on the Senate Finance Committee and these kind of things, right? With connections. I, I don't think it was federal money though, actually I think it was state money that gave these guys the loans. So they came up with money that some of the guys wanted Raddens, 28-foot Raddens, 24-foot Raddens. I won't mention their names because I don't have permission. But there was a half a dozen guys that, you know, wanted my little diesel 26-foot skip. So I built them for them, and, and uh, they paid me, and then all the kids went fishing. It, it wasn't that hard to pay off a boat, right? This is like a couple of months that the boat was paid off. Because of, the, the, especially the winter big eye run off Kona, and, and it, it, sometimes it would be, you know, right side out of town, off Kealakakua Bay, along the flows, back down Mililii, Kano Point, around the corner, off Green Sand Beach. But they weren't that hard to find. And then normally, not so much off Kona, but more off South Point, Green Sand Beach, there was always what we called the winter yellowfin run down there. So I fished that in my 26-foot skiff. And then uh, I was pretty content and carefree. And then um, I had a friend, Will, who said, well, put in your, put in your, um, put your name on the list. They're going to expand Honagao Harbor. Get yourself a slip. And I said, well, I don't really need a slip. I got a 
trailer, but no, no, he said, oh, Joe, you got to put your name on the this list. This is Will Lasby. Yeah. Yeah, good guy. Get your name on the list. So I put my name on the list. And then uh, they finished the expansion in the back part of Onagawa Harbor. And uh, and my name was on the list. And on the list, I had went on the list for a 30-footer. So my spot came up there. Or they told me my spot was coming up. So I built my first 30-foot catamaran. So I built a 30-foot catamaran. And then I sold my trailerable boat. I had my 30-foot catamaran. And you built this catamaran right in Kona? In my front yard on Polani Road, right next to my garage. Awesome. Yeah. So I built that there. It, it took me less than a month, and I was done. Well, start to finish. And uh, I got my slip, so I cemented my slip. And the cement spot is, of course, still there. And I put in a loading crane, a big, heavy loading crane. And the way I handle my fish is I had a box that held about 20... Two, maybe 24 at the most, 2,400 pounds with uh, a big white oak lip in the top and real heavy stainless steel eyes. And I could come under my loading crane and I could lift the whole box of fish onto the back of my flatbed truck so I didn't have to load. In a trailer anyway. boat, what we did is we trailered into the ice house to unloaded Volcano Island. So now, I actually built two boxes so I could lift one box off, put it on my truck, go over to a Volcano, have them take their forklift and unload it, set my empty on my truck, but not empty, uh, filled with ice, Yep. then go back to my slip, lift it up with the crane, put it on the boat. So it, it solved that whole moving ice shit around issue of tubs and bags and unloading in the harbor and lifting and this, that, blah, blah, blah. So they could take my fish box right into the chill room to take the fish out and scale them. So it was it was an upgrade in fish handling. So yeah. I, I was pretty, I was happy with the way that worked out. But then a friend of mine that I went to high school with and had fished albacore with in high school, who had a very wealthy real estate development situation, and his father died, and him and Harry, Steve and Harry inherited like $500 million. So, and a lot of, all kinds of buildings and shopping centers in Southern California. So he bumps into me in Kona and he, I take him out on a little 30 footer. And we have fun, he can she be catching squid, this and that, whatever. He says, oh, we need a bigger boat. We need a really big boat. I said, Steve, well, I know you owned a boat company, and you built 185 boats even before you got here. And look, it only took you a month to build this. I go, Steve, gosh, I'm just, who wants to build another big boat? I'm, built a, I'm tired of building boats. But anyhow, so he, at the time I was dating a girl named Lisa. Oh, anyway, so she moved into my house and wanted to get married. And I said, well, I don't want to get married, but... Maybe if we have a kid, maybe if we have a kid, then I'll get married. But just to get married without a kid, no, no, no. So anyhow, as things turned out, we had two kids. And uh, uh, when she got pregnant, I went to Steve and I said, okay, Steve, if I'm going to have kids, maybe sons. And Steve had a son too, Mike. I said, yeah, the 30-footer's too small. Let's build a bigger boat. So I drew up plans. Now... 
at the time, were you already thinking this boat would go to the Sea Mountain? Or what were you thinking you were going to do with this bigger boat? No. Well, I'll back up on the story with the 30-footer. So, the last week, or the last fishing trip I ever took on the 26-footer was with Will. And the Coast Guard was sending a weather buoy called 51005, dead smack in the middle of the Ali Nui channel. And, of course, Will and I were so, fishing. Our so, eyes really opened up. And for the people at home, how many miles from Honokai Harbor in Kona would that have been? It was right in the middle of the channel. Well, you'd... Well, I'll tell you this. It, in my... It, it was about... In the 30-footer, which I subsequently built, it was a... Um, I'd, I'd leave the dock at midnight, and I'd get... I'd get to that buoy in my 30-foot cat with the twin yarn Mars at gray light on the average. But I'd kind of hug in along the coast. It's not an easy, a nice place to go fishing. Right. So Will and I were up there on a dead calm day in the 26-footer, but we knew the channel, right? Right. So, so that was one of the reasons I said, Will, we need a submarine. If we're going to fish this buoy, we need a small submarine to troll out of because... You know how shitty this place is going to get when the fish play. Well, especially for the people that don't know at home, the channel is considered... One of the roughest in the world. One of the roughest channels in the world. So. And the reason is very simple. The wind blows from the east to the west, and the current goes from the west to the east up that channel. Always. And sometimes two, three, I've seen it four knots, four and a half knots, right into 25 knots of wind. So everything's vertical. That's a nightmare. It's a nightmare yeah. to go fishing. Even if you sneak up to a pool of point, kind of ride in the trough to go down. So a after that, after that, I said, okay, so Will and I talk. I said, Will, I'm going to build a catamaran, but it's going to be like a submarine catamaran. So the way the 30-footer was built, it didn't have any external hatches. It didn't, and that's one reason we did the removable fish box. The deck was totally washed deck without a single hatch. And it had a watertight cabin. And it had a 24-inch step that you stepped over to get into the cabin. And the engine hatches were inside the cabin. And on the back door over each hall, it had gates to pull in fish that went to deck level. So if the gates were out, it didn't matter if you took a greenie, it's going to run off the deck. Right. So we built that boat. It was fully foam-filled. It was foam-filled. You could cut it up, you wouldn't sink it. So we weren't worried about sinking it. And um, so, so we had our submarine to fish that buoy when it, when it was shitty. So, uh, what were you catching at this buoy? Like, what made this buoy so desirable that it would be worth going in this shitty weather? Well, it was just the tuna, the morning tuna bite on Big Eye Tuna was just insane. They, they, the big, the Big Eye were there. Big Eye were there biting like crazy. Oh, in the in at the gray light on the weather buoy, it was nuts. So there, there was some issues, and uh, that's where we discovered dangling, in fact, because we were trollers, and we, we had trolling reels and trolling lines. Yeah, so the people at home, because like, a lot of the people that are listening are from all over the place, and I get a lot of questions about dangling, but since you actually literally invented dangling, maybe you can explain to the people at home how dangling came to be and what it is, since you are literally the man who invented it. Well, it was easy, because... When you reel up a fish on the back of this little 30-footer, you grab the leader and pull it through the gate, 
you spike the fish, you take the hook out, and the the <laughs> your pole, your pole with your 14-0 senators is hanging over the back of the boat, right. and the leader you take off and throw in, in the water is dangling on top of the water. And instantly would get bit again. And the next one would bite. You didn't have to troll. It was just biting them right off the rod tip. That was it. So you just stood there, threw some anchovy palu when you got to that buoy, and just lifted right off the rod tip until you were full. That was it. That was the beginning of day. So we didn't have to let line in and out. We, 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 well, what the next step, of course, was since you didn't need a rod and a reel and line in and out, was to go to two side danglers. Right, so a lot were, of people aren't going to know this. What, like, a dang, like the original danglers, or even the danglers we use today, they're, they're metal pipes with rings that have rope. So was there was there a step in between that? No, or you you knew we that right right, right to the pipes, right to the pipes. Two pipes, one on each side with two danglers. And what now, what you got to remember, what you got to remember, is that when you're looking at that size fish in a boat that holds at most that size, maybe twenty two hundred. What was the average fish on this buoy at the time? Oh, it was all over a hundred. Oh, they were all, all, they all, were all big, big ones. ones. Awesome. All the big ones came up. Maybe later in the day we could have trolled for us, but we were never there later in the day. I mean, we, we, there, a lot of times we'd get a my, 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 my ain't the neighbors. We were throwing Palo, everybody with a tuna biting on them and everything. Everything was grabbing them right there. How many other boats would fish this buoy? Or were you the only I one? had it a year and a half to myself. Wow. Never another boat. Did people know where you were going or it just took well, a while? Well, the boat, the, the least, this 30 footer was the Gray Ghost. So a guy named uh, Jeff Zager who had the Sammy Lou a black boat. He was, he was watching this. But you got to remember, when I came in and unloaded fish, I just lifted the fish box off and put it on my truck. Then I drove my fish to the ice house. So nobody came. actually saw what you were unloading? Nobody ever saw a fish. It went in forklift into the volcano on fish, right? So that was easy for me. But you got to remember, that morning rush in the buoy, that morning rush in the buoy with two guys lifting... 25, 26 fish off the danglers. That was like, what, 42 minutes or something, and we were done. So it'd be hard to actually catch you in the act. Hard to catch me in the act. Wow. A gray light. And so what I did with Jeff, well, I, the 30-footer was a fiberglass uh, wood epoxy and and no radar reflectors on it. You're all, and no you're, all, you're all stealthed out. And painted gray, and you just turn the lights off, right, when you leave on the gal. And you make that run. Everybody knew the direction I left they knew you were toward head, Pine Tree. They knew you were heading north, but they didn't know where you were going. They had no idea how far or where I was going. They had no, Nobody knew where I was going. How did you figure out that weather buoy was there and the other guys didn't figure that out? How did you find that out? Well, Will, Will had told me that he heard the Coast Guard was setting a NOAA buoy in the middle of the Ali Nui Ha Channel, and just by uh, coincidence, they picked a dead calm day to set it, or maybe not by coincidence. So we, we went up there into my 26-footer to watch him set the buoy. Oh, so you actually saw them I put watched, it in the water? Yes, I watched him set it and anchor it. Oh, awesome. I watched him do it. How big was this buoy? It was the bigger metal one. It, it's not. It's not the small one they have now. It was boat shaped, with a with a angled bow and and you know sides. It was a big buoy. The good buoys that used to really bite. Yeah, the yeah. good ones that used to really. So how big do you think that was? They, those were like maybe like were they? They were sixteen feet long. Yeah, I was gonna say 15, 16 feet long. They buoys. weren't. They weren't 
uh, four-foot circles. No. That's what you They were big. And not only that, they had a real deep keel. Their keel, the metal keel in the middle, the sides, it, they were built like a sailboat. Right. So you saw the sides, but then the keel was they big and went down deep, right? So that older design was deep. Apparently, I'll, I'll tell you why. There was a guy named Mike Hine, who was a famous Kona fisherman, and he had told me that there was a Noah weather buoy like 500 miles east of Hilo, northeast of Hilo, that he had heard was holding mean schools of big island. But of course, that was way out of my range. Right. I didn't have the equipment. So anyway, so that buoy breaks loose after certainly the time it's gone. The 51005. The first one. The first one. And when they reset it, they don't reset it there. They reset it north of Molokai in the Molokai Channel. Ah. And it was worthless there. I checked it was shit. It was never the same. Never the same. So, so, so I had my 30-footer. I says, well, what am I going to do? So uh, a crabber, a crabber that winter came out of Alaska and was tied up at the pier in Kona. How big of a crabber are you talking? Yeah, like 90-footer. Oh, big so boat. like a big deadliest catch type boat. Yeah, and yeah. he had converted some crab traps the prawn traps. And Will and I were on the Mahali guy, Will and I were on the pier talking to this guy and he says, I want to go fish prawn on the cross seamount. Oh really, let's look at a chart. He said, yeah, on the edge of the cross seamount like in 400 fathoms. Now at this point, the cross seamount wasn't on your radar at all? No. No. No, and, and, and I had I had taken the 30-footer once to the Jager. And, uh, Which is about, what, 55 miles out? Yeah, yeah, and in pretty calm water off of Coleman. Yep. And uh, I was fishing alone, and I went out there, and I caught some nice fish trolling in my mind. There was fish there. But, you see, we were spoiled. We, we had a year and a half of unlimited fishing on the first weather buoy in the channel. How long did it take for the buoy to actually hold fish? So you actually witnessed it being set, and then how long was it before the buoy started holding fish? Well, I can tell you that that it took me less than two months from the time we saw it set till I completed and sea trialed the 30-footer. Because the normal weather was not the kind of weather you'd take a single-hole 26-footer up. I wanted a submarine. Right. You wanted something bigger. Well, not, not only bigger, but I removed the fish. Uh, I had my, my slip had come up. I wanted to do the slip, the crane. So I did everything all together, right? I knew the buoy was there. It was almost Garambalbaran was going to bite. So I did the cement on the slip, the crane, the box, built a, built a boat that could take as many green waves over it, nothing to worry about. Yep. There were a lot of days there where we were, well, especially I fished it alone most of the time. I, I put on a safety harness and a strap and had a big eye bolt and then strapped myself to the stern. Just to be safe. Well, yeah, you're there all alone lifting over a 100-pound big eye into the boat. It's easy to slip out a gate. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You just slide out. Well, open gate. You're open, you're done. Right? Yeah. But I, I had a tether short enough so I couldn't slip off the back deck. And that was it. Kind of an interesting story, too, to this. One, 
One morning I woke up about 11.30 at night and I had a young son, Joe Jr. And he wasn't quite a year old. He was, I think, 11 months old. And his mom woke up hungover. He says, where are you? I said, I'm going up to the channel buoy. Take your son with you. Or I'll pack his clothes. It's a two-story. I said, really? Yeah, take him with you. So I load my kid up with his bag and, you know, all the shit for the so 11 months So this is Junior is less than a year old. Yeah, not even a year old. He wasn't even a year old. Because we, we launched the boat. We launched and started fishing that boat in April. And uh, his birthday was the, is the 26th of May. So he was up there a couple of weeks before his first birthday. And, uh, and of course, I kept, I, I, I only took him because I had a 24-inch lip right. to get out of the cabin. Well, so the weather must have been decent, too. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't blowing gale or anything. Right, right, it right. was fairly decent. So I get him up there. And uh, it wasn't much of a big eye bite, but it was a mean my my bite. It was, I was dangling my mind. So I dangled a couple thousand pounds of my mind. It was so funny. The, the thing about that boat is, is the fish box was in front of the pilot house. So I had some drop-in boards between the pilot house and the side. So I could throw my my forward and they didn't slip back under my feet. But I fucked up on one of them. I threw it in the cabin. The snake didn't know it. Oh, and no. all of a sudden I hear him screaming. There's this my my in the cabin and he's holding the side of the rail with his chin over it going, ah, ah, and there's my, my bouncing all over. Oh my So I goodness. get that my, my out of the thing and I got my load of my, my. And I'm headed back, I'm headed back for Kona, changing diapers and feeding him. It, it was quite an experience. And, right. then his, and then his mother, <laughs> his mother met us, met us when we tied up, I called her, she came down and got him and then I, loaded the fish box up with the crane and uh, and that was number one son first that was really his first big fishing trip that's Before amazing that, I don't even not remember. even a year old on his first trip that's <laughs> the middle of the Ainuiha channel that's incredible <laughs> yeah yeah it was nuts right what an introduction to fishing oh he still remembers it to the day and so do I you could never forget a day like that, right? that that must have been unbelievable to see your son with the Mai Mai flapping around in the cabin. <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. <laughs> and his eyes, of course. Dad, dad, dad. The thing about Joe Jr. is this kid, this kid could speak well before he was one year old. I mean, he was a talker. It's incredible. Yeah, he was a good talker. One time I had him down at the King Cam Stretchmark Beach there by the pier stretch mark beach yeah where the girls hung out with all the little babies <laughs> i've never heard it hurt what where the girls hung out with the young babies trying uh, to stretch mark beach put, putting oil on their tummies to try to get rid of the oh my god mark. i've never heard it referred to that that's amazing okay so i was down there one day sitting joe joe had swimming in the king camp pool but they kicked us out because we weren't staying at the hotel and i went over to stretch mark beach and i was sitting there talking to joe and this is before he was first birthday too and a couple of the mothers with their little babies come over and go how old is your son I go oh, like 10 and a half months you're having a conversation with a 10 and a half month old baby I says well why did you walk over here oh I heard you talking and I says yeah I am Joe kind of looks at him what what it's amazing yeah, it's funny he was a it was a I, you know you know looking back on it I think it was that 
he was never really treated like I never had time to treat him like a baby, really. Right. You had to treat him from an adult from day one. Well, yeah, when he was with me and I had him with me and we were going on the 26-footer down to the harbor, changing this, doing this, blah, 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 blah. All the conversation he heard was fishermen talking, whatever he heard. Right. You know, so what was his first word, like, fuck you or something? Or? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's an interesting thing. Because, oh, no, don't say that. No, I, I will say this, though. I was informed that my son needed to clean up his language by about the time he was one year old. Oh, my God. So he invented a, a word. He invented a word to say, and the word he invented, you maybe never heard this one before, was doo-doo bang-bang. Instead of saying fuck off or fuck you, he said doo-doo bang-bang. And you know what it meant. Well, that was just what he felt was appropriate for a child instead of an adult. Smart that kid. was his total invention, not my invention. I didn't say, Joe Jr., you got to say doo-doo bang-bang. Right, right. He picked up on it people's looks and vibes and goes doo-doo bang-bang huh. so kind of interesting that is it's kind pretty, of an interesting kid right? that is an interesting story so so let's get back to the boat so we're building a bigger boat we've, we've, we've seen wide open fishing but now the buoy's gone they moved the buoy and then where the new location sucks which we've all seen when you do this long enough buoys need to be in a certain spot Water, they're, and, not gonna uh, they're not going to work so yeah. so now they've moved that weather buoy and you kind of looking for something new you've been on jagger you caught some fish but it still wasn't anything like you're seeing at the buoy you get an invitation to go to the, to the cross, cross seamount and fish for deep water shrimp on a crabber on a big crabber okay tell so, us about that so we're out there fishing for deep water shrimp on a big crabber but of course we're what well, entails what like throwing traps throwing traps yep. modified king crab traps been modified as deep water shrimp traps now, is this the Days of Loran? How do you know where the cross seamount is? Yeah, Days of Loran. And the Loran signal varied anything from 7 to 14 miles. But we had a chart showing when it was off 7, and then it worked away up to 14 and back to 7. So we knew we had to be... Was this Loran A or Loran C already? I don't remember. It was A or C. But remember, we had to, because it was Curry Island, we had to be 7 miles south at a certain time of day to, to pick up... But, what, but, but once you the got station. there, once you got there and saw your coordinates, but as, as day went to night, night went to day, the signal shifted. Right. So a lot of the younger people probably don't know that it used to actually We didn't be, have GPS or plotters. Right. So this cross seamount is 138 miles off of Kona, but in order it's to... 142. Well, depending on center, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the center is 142, and... But you had to actually cross two radio signals to figure out how to, you, get how to get there. Today, that's taken for granted because people have a, a, a satellite. You know, they got a GPS in their in their watch. Plotter, yeah. Right. But back then, you actually had to figure out the two radio signals and make them cross section to know where they were at. Right. Yeah. So for the people that don't know that at home, because I know, like I know from my um, I'm analytics that I actually have a lot of people that have been listening that are like 17 to 24 years old. They would have probably never even heard of a lot of this stuff. It wouldn't probably no. They had, would have no idea right. how. how uh, so so here was the issue. So I got the thirty footer and I've gone out to the Jager. That wasn't that hard to find, but with the currents and things where they were, finding the cross seamount leaving from Kona is is a 
in a 30-footer, right, right, is is sketchy. It may take you a day or two, or you shit, you may never find it, right, right, depending on your current, whether you can get a signal or not. Well, you have the you have the Loran, but but the problem with the Loran, it wasn't just seven miles. It in 12 hours it went from seven to 14 miles off, then it went back to seven, then it went up to 14. So it it cycled with a day day and night cycle, but then. Then, uh, see, that must they, have been with Ran A because yeah. that, that's a huge difference. Yeah, yeah, that must have been like very early Loran. Yeah. Like it was a Loran station built in off Curry Island, went right after World War II or something. It was an old piece of shit, right? Right, and it and normally you'd take two Loran stations giving you a cross, right? But we only had a line, and the line wasn't that good. Oh, you didn't even have a cross section, you only had one line to one work line. on. Oh my God! Yeah, one line to work on. No wonder that'd be difficult. Yeah. Oh shit! Line. So you didn't even have a cross bearing. No. Wow, that's incredible that you even found the fucking thing. Well, we found it. But then, how would you know you were there from the meter? Yeah, you'd see the bottom. Right. You'd have your bottom would pick it up. Right. And because you needed the meter on the crabber to, you wanted to set your traps on the bottom in four four hundred fathoms. But after that trip, so what happened on your first trip? What's it like? You're you're out there hauling gear. And what are you seeing? Like, what's the experience like? Your first day on the cross, or your first trip. What's the cross like? The cross, the cross has birds, but we're not trolling. We're not really looking for birds. We're setting the shrimp traps. We're crewing for this guy setting the shrimp traps. And what what was kind of interesting about baiting and setting the traps? We went, picked them up. We could see the current, current moving by. You know, we picked up the vibes from the cross, and. Uh, and uh, when we pulled them, what was interesting on the cross is there was a, an eel anywhere from about 18 to 24 inch eel with bright green eyes. And we caught more of that soft eel than we did of the shrimp. It, it was, it's like an unbelievable eel fishery, I guess. It maybe still is. Wow. Because right. nobody has ever set for the shrimp there. I mean, nobody's really fished it for the eel. Right. But but that deep water edge around the cross in the in the what would be called the deep water shrimp zone, which we also call how was the shrimping? Marginal. Marginal. Yeah, not not really worth. We caught them, but not really worth your effort. Okay. Those I mean, not not enough. In other words, if if you had twenty pounds of shrimp, you had forty pounds of eel. Really. So the eels, this this, I I wish I I don't even have, of course we didn't have cell phones with pictures or we had nothing. Right. So, so the traps be full of these eels. Yeah. So we spent four days there, then we came back. Now, had you seen any tunas? Like, how? yeah, we had seen aku and birds, and and uh, Will and I, we didn't have a shoot. Where would you get a shoot for an 80, 90 foot crabber? Though? Right. So you could really run any kashibi line. Right. So you didn't have para- yeah. parachute like a sea anchor. No, we we so we just laid in the trough and we. Drug some ikashibi lines at night, but I, I think we caught a few big eye or we caught a few fish, 20, 30 pounder. We didn't catch much. Yep. We weren't that impressed yep. uh, with the tuna bite. But what we did when we got back in, when we got back in, and I had my 30 foot boat, and uh, we had seen the spectacular fishing in the middle of the channel on that old Noah buoy, I said, well, what a place to go fishing. And of course, we thought, well, let's put a buoy out there, right? Oh, out on the, out on the mountain? In the middle of the mountain. Oh, okay. Going. So you're thinking about throwing a buoy on the mountain. On the mountain. Okay, cool. Right in the middle of the mountain. 
Maybe it'll be as good as the one on the that used to be in the middle of the channel. But of course, you got to be able to go back and forth. But I had the range. I had the range in my 30-foot cat. And I knew it was safe. It wasn't going to sing. And uh, I had a. I didn't have a single sideband radio. So I got a used single sideband radio on the mainland. Of, somebody in Seattle sold me one. A northern electronic single sideband. And I set up a base station at my house. So I had a pair where I could talk to home. You right? could check in. Check in. Because... Yeah, we didn't have email. We didn't have shit. Right, right. right. It's you not, right. Out there. It's not yeah. today. Yeah. yeah, it's not today. It's 1978. And uh, the other thing that just came in at the time, a company called Magnavox made a satellite na navigator, and they had a few satellites that could pick up a signal. I know you've ever heard of one of these. Nope. It, 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 it was a satellite navigator. They cost about 12000 bucks. And uh, a guy named Jim Black at West Hawaii Electronics, a boat that had been traveling all around the world, here, there, whatever, had one. And uh, a rich person, right? But, you know, right. money wasn't an issue. But the thing was acting a little bit funny, and, he had, and Jim ordered him a new one and installed it. But he repaired this other one, and it seemed to work. Now, it, it took... It, it got like three fixes in 24 hours, about six to eight hours for a fix. And then the computer in it, back in those days, they didn't have, you know, fast computing speeds. From the fix, it took about another hour to compute your fix. So, so if you were in a location and you just stayed right there, within two or three hours, it could tell you where you're at, your, your, your coordinates. Okay. So... The combination of getting that from Jim, and I think he sold, gave me a deal, like two or three thousand, he sold it to me, which was a huge deal. And the used single sideband from Seattle. And Jim Black is still the gentleman who does my electronics to this day. He's got a new radar uh, waiting for me back at home. So it's pretty incredible. He is also still going at it strong. Yeah, Jim Black is one of those amazing uh, soft, quiet, soft-spoken geniuses. He is a genius. He is, he is yeah. a genius. He's an amazing guy, uh, been through all the life's ups and downs, and I won't go into those because they're personal. But I know him pretty well, right? So we've all gone through the ups and downs. But anyhow, so now I have the equipment on the 30-footer to go to the cross. Okay. Oh, boy. <laughs> so I go to the cross. Okay, so what? I already know dangling, okay? I know dangling. Right. I can carry anchovy power. I'm going to go trolling on the cross, right? All right. Let's see. I'm not going to go throw a buoy the first time I go out there. Okay, so we're not thinking throwing the buoy first. We're just going to go look to see if we see anything that's worth it. I time. want to check out my satellite, my Magnavox Navigator. I want to check out, I put in a single sideband base up at my house on Pilani Road. I want to make sure my radio communications are good, everything. So, out to the cross. Well, one trip, that was it. It was just like the middle of the, <laughs> the channel buoy when they first put it in. It didn't take you an hour to fill the boat, right? You were so full. What You're happened? Because the cross isn't like a buoy, so what happened? You found a bird pile or something? And yeah, you yeah, into we it just, and just, yeah. And we had my depth sounder going. We had the depth sounder going. I, uh, Faruno depth sounder I bought from Jim Black, all set up with the in the hole transducer. And yeah, you just see the whole fucking school come up. 
no yeah. meter go red. It was just on. On. That's it. You're just going to fill up. Maybe 30 minutes. And now what size were most of these fish? Because these are, are... They weren't as big as the channel buoy fish. I would say... I would say 40 to 60. 40 to 60 pounders. Yeah. Rather than the ones in the Alleyniha when I was fishing it long ago with a bigger fish. Right. For whatever... Maybe the inshore fish were bigger. Yeah. Hard to say. So... So after... A couple of trips like that, it's real obvious. You're not going to waste all that time going there and all that time going back and fish for an hour. Don't, right. Don't, you you, you got to have some place to put some fish. Right, because you're filling up in an hour. So Yeah, it's just stupid. Right? right. So then so then I do the drawings. I do the drawings for uh, a 15-foot wide. And the reason I went 15-foot wide is Gentry's travel lift would only pick up to 15 foot 6 inches. Right. So I went 15... That's, that's the boat yard in Kona. Yeah. yeah. So I went up to 15 foot wide to uh, just under 50 foot long and I ordered special sheets of plywood, 5 by 10 sheets from Portland enough to build the upgraded version. In other words, the, the, the 12 foot by 30 catamaran, a 4 by 8 sheet was good. For the bigger one, you really wanted a five by ten sheet, you know, okay. to eliminate the seams and make it all go together and work out. Okay. So, what was the name of this book? Well, we didn't call it the Gray Ghost. We call, we named it after Lisa, my wife at the time. We called it the Lisa D. Lisa D. Lisa D. So, so Will was working in construction. Here's how we built this boat out in Waikoloa, and he was saving every every Saturday morning. We would go out there and he'd have a pile of scraps saved from the construction. So I drew up the boats and I drew up all the frames and I built a uh, eight by 16 foot table behind my garage and I laid out in drawing in real size the frames for that boat. Then I took the scrap wood from Waikoloa and I built the frames. Awesome. And I ordered uh, System 3 plywood from, uh, I ordered the plywood from C, uh, Portland and the two 55-gallon barrels of epoxy from Systems 3 in Seattle and the rolls of Cofab, the first time I ever used the, the woven and mat. Not woven, stitched and mat, stitch mat. So, uh, yeah, I, there was another boat. We built it in 30 days. Another 30-day boat. Another 30-day boat. And now, how much did that boat hold? Oh, I mean, we, we could have... Depending on how many fish boxes you wanted to put on the deck. All right. The 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 that boat would hold. That boat was walk around. And I would say you could squeeze at least ten thousand into it. Ten thousand so pounds. Five times as much as the other. And in the beginning, how long was that? That was that a day, two days. What was it usually taking to fill that back then? Well, I did. I did seventy eight trips in a row without taking a day off in that. 78 trips in a row without a day off and Just again and again and, and again and how long because was the by trip? then by then when I was building that bigger boat yeah I could feel the pressure from the fishermen in Kona I knew that other boats were coming coming but it was going to take them a while right? yeah so when I when I stuck that boat in the water and went out and filled it up so people have figured out now you're going to the cross the word was out well, they didn't know whether it was Weather Buoy 2, which actually I wasn't going to at the time. It was the cross. And uh, and no need to go 
past South Point into rougher weather, right? Right. Stay in the lead, as much, get, take as much lead of the Big Island as you can get. And, uh, yeah, 78 trips in a row. I didn't take a single day off. How many guys do you have with you on this boat? You got one or two crew going with you? One. One crew. So two guys, 10,000 pounds. Average trip was how many days? I was never on the Cross Sea Mount in 78 trips. Longer than a day and a half. Longer than a day and a half. It was just biting. Yeah. Amazing. Depending on the weather and the current. Sometimes when you know how the Cross is, sometimes you get there at the wrong time and the fish has moved here there. And right. of course we had to learn, right? Right. Where to go and this and that. But we nailed it down right. So uh, it got to the point where the issue was, <laughs> what are you going to do with your fish? You were catching more than the market could hold. Well, yeah. I mean, when you're getting that consistent and that much you need at the time, at the time, I, what I did, what I did at the time, I got a big flatbed trailer, four great tubs that I could lift with my crane and load up and then I drove them to the KTA stores in Kona, Waikoloa, Waimea, uh, the two in Hilo side and back. I made that run and that's why that's why when I came in and unloaded, as soon as I got rid of my fish, oh and by the way that was the first boat with a ice maker. I had a water maker and an ice maker on that boat. Cool. So I was, I, I was, I had a... You're like the first guy around with an ice maker. So, yeah, the way that boat, the way that ice maker ran on that boat is I had a, the transmissions had an SAEB on them. And I put a hydraulic pump on both of the SAEBs. So I had dual power systems. And the hydraulic motor ran a 20 kW generator. So it was no, no separate diesel generator. It was hydraulics off the transmission from the main engine to running a generator to run the ice maker. Very smart. Yeah, so that's how that one ran. Very smart. And then... And then... Uh, my, but I don't, I'm not sure what happened with Steve at the time. Anyhow. Let me ask you something. So, okay, so you can feel the other fishermen are coming. You got the KTA markets. And then what? Then it's you're thinking it's time for an even bigger boat now? Is no. Is that right? Not no, yet. No. No. No, not time for I was happy. Not time for anything bigger. But uh looking back here, if my memory serves me right. So a buddy of mine, there was two buddies, and incredibly they were both named Steve. From San Diego that I, you know, grew up with. One of them came over and went fishing with me and he says, Joe. And both Steves were together. Why don't you sell me this boat? I'll move over here and fish it. And the other Steve goes, yeah, yeah, let's build a, let's upgrade our boat. So they had gone fishing with you on the cross and seen it and thought, No, I they hadn't to... been to the cross yet. Oh, they'd only seen oh, Steve had. Okay. The fisherman had, but not the rich guy. The other Steve. The other Steve. <laughs> so he goes, well, let's build, let's build a bigger boat. If, if, if Steve wants the 15 by 48 and a half cat just sell it to him and uh, let's let's really upgrade let's really upgrade our boat so I drew the 24 by 70 uh, boat we're on now I drew it up in wood plywood 
it took me a few days, but it wasn't hard because you know I'm on my third drawing already. I knew exactly how right, I right. wanted the pieces to. Be. You're more or less just building a bigger version. A bigger, with yeah, some, upgrading with the some version. tweaks. Yeah. With some tweaks, and uh, Steve looked it all over and he says, "Well, you know what, Joe, money really isn't an issue. So let's take your set of plans, and and you have any." Naval architect you really like. And I, I did. It was the guy's name was Niels Lukander. I loved his designs. And he was he lived in Tacoma, an old man lived in Tacoma. So I sent the plans to Niels. And he looked it over and then we chatted, talked back and forth on the phone. And he convinced Steve that the boat should be built in aluminum. I go, Jesus, Steve, <laughs> what are you talking about? I get fiberglass or wood epoxy. So what, what Luke Kander said, here's what I'll do, Joe. There's a company called Capital Industries here in Washington. I will have them pre, I will, I will order and prefab, I will send drawings to Capital Industry and have them pre-bend, prefab all year long. You know, the band this, this and that, the side, and it's gonna be a simple build. He said, you set up the frames, you set up the line of frames, and I'll have the anything that has to be better attached. I'll have that prefit, all prefab for you. So this is the so the first you've ever had to do with aluminum is building your own boat. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. My first one. But what he did, what what Niels did, he said, I know a welder and his partner. When you, he goes, where are you going to build it? I said, I'll oh, build it in my front yard on Polani Road. And he says, well, when you get everything there, when you get everything there and you get your building set up and you're ready to go, we'll, we'll send two Seattle welders over, a lead guy and a backup welder, two guys. And they'll, they've worked with Niels before, right? Okay. So I said, oh, okay, well, it doesn't look like it's going to be that big a problem. And uh, Steve said, don't worry about the money, Joe. Let's just do it. So I sold, I had money because I sold my, I sold my, uh, well, to go back a little bit, I went from the garage and now I had my house finished. So I'd already paid for the house, not the mortgage. So I had my house on Polani Road, three bedroom, three bathroom, all, all done, plus my garage, plus my front yard. And, uh, and uh, so I said, okay, so he got everything all set up and he said, fly over and I flew over it was in February, cold in Seattle. And he went over the plans and I looked through every piece of aluminum and we I was there a few days discussing this and that. Blah 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 blah. Right. So yeah, so we loaded it into a forty foot container. It all fit in one container. But we we brought a brand new welding machine, a track welder, we brought a hundred of the biggest bottles of argon gas and the big 13 and a half pound rolls of aluminum, like 200 rolls of aluminum, everything that he thought we'd need to complete the job. So it all came in, it all came in, and, uh, and uh, Will and my buddies, we, we built a uh, 24 by 75 foot temporary building with a frame and blue tarps in my front yard. Of course, 
a little bit different time uh, as far as permits and things like that. Like, you could never get away with that today. No, they wouldn't let me do it today, no. Well, I, well the guy, the guys from the county that came by, he says, well, you got to tear this down in 90 days. And I said, well, we're going to be all done in 90 days. And the guy just kind of chuckled and laughed. But we didn't have a building department in Kona. He had to drive over from Elo. Before everything was regulated to death. To death. Yeah. Regulated to death, right. So... I'll tell you how unregulated it was. I went down to the harbor department, and what we did is, is we did the two halls, and we did all the deck, all the superstructure was all finished. At your house? At my house. But now, we had to put it together, right? And you're not going to trailer it. We could trailer the... We actually put a, an axle and wheels on a 70-foot hull and trailered it down to the harbor. Right, so you have built a hull for a 70-foot catamaran in your front yard. Two of them. Two of them. Yeah. Okay. It's both the hulls. And the whole deck and superstructure was all prefab, like either wall, ceiling, all finished, but just needed to be joined. Oh, wow. So then, so then I go to a guy named Ian Burney. I doubt if he's still alive, but he was a hell of a guy. And I go, Mr. Burney? Yeah, I figured this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I says, well, you know, I got all the pieces sitting up in my house. And he goes, well... You are on the, I was on the slip. I was on the list for a 70-foot slip already. And he says, well, it looks like you're going to come up for a 70-foot slip soon. And it'll be, we'll just expand the side tie where your 30-foot is. I said, okay, Mr. Burning, right next to where we're going to put it in the water so I can lift it with the crane and set it in the water. You, uh, you need to let me move that temporary building down on state property. <laughs> And uh, he waited a couple of days. I didn't hear from him, but I'll tell you. Wait. So you asked, you asked the state official if you could move that temporary building onto state <laughs> land to finish your building yeah. down at the harbor. Yeah. Okay. So, and I called up Jerry and I talked to Frank and I talked to Senator. I talked to all of them, and I said, you know, guys, are you going to help me do this? This is called Frank Goto over at the auction. Yep. Well, and Senator Inouye, I said, you know, I would, we're upgrading AI. It's actually, he said, you know what? We need young men upgrading our fishery. The old Japanese fleet, the wood, aku boats, you know, it's all, the sand all down, downhill, yeah. right? Right. And he said, I hear it's kind of a novel design, all aluminum, blah, 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 blah. I said, yeah. So a couple of days later, Bertie, he says, go ahead, Joe. Move it all down. Just like that? Yeah. Move it all down, put it together. He said, but I'm begging for one thing. Don't move it all down and stop putting it together. He said, the one thing you can't do stop. is walk away for six months and just leave it there. I want to see you down there seven days a week till the boat goes in the water. I said, you got my way. <coughs> so Bernie, yeah, all these people, everybody I dealt with then is dead now. Yeah. Unfortunately. That is unfortunate. Yeah, because we had a great group of guys then backing our fishery. Really, we did have a great group. So anyhow, so we put it together. I mean, it was like uh, like four months or five months. The whole boat was together. The engines were in. Fuel tanks done. It was a huge day. The, the day we went in the water at Holocaust. So that was hundreds of people. You built that thing literally in the parking lot in Honokau Harbor. Right next to where my the slip I used to have is. Amazing. Right there, like 40 feet away. And the slip, for people who don't know this, but maybe are listening from Kona, 
and the boat's been out of there for years, is where the Campachi farmers are now. That big side tie up there is was which, granted to the double D, the seventy right, foot double D. That that was yours. If you look today, if you ever walk by, you can see a set of handprints that I happen to know are my kids. Are your kids. Joe and Ryan's uh, handprints are still there today from when they poured the uh, the concrete slab, which I always think is pretty cool every time I see that because their hands are tiny. Yeah, the boys, <laughs> the little boys. Now they're now, now now they're how old are the boys now? They're thirty and thirty four. Thirty and thirty four. So that was a long time ago. Yeah, the double D's thirty four years old. It'll be thirty uh, the double D the double D in April will be thirty five. Thirty five, and in, here we in are. A month. In a month, and here we are standing on it today, <laughs> and it's still fishing. And it's good. still fishing well. Isn't that yeah. incredible? I I I figured, I figured just from the new engines I put in and the hours it has on them, the double D has been around the world. If you want to put that in your mind, all the way around the world. How many trips? The distance yep. it's covered, forty-five times. The boat has been around the world forty-five times in mileage. Yeah, in thirty-five years. That's incredible. Yeah, that's how many miles it's, it's, it's run. That is amazing. Yeah. Now, Joe, we are going to take a quick break because when I get to an hour, I have to stop with the app okay. I use. And so we're going to take a quick break and take this right up. I just have to save that. So okay. Our next story, if you need to take a break or something, now is the time. Well, this, is, some water. this is going great, Joe. Thank you. You like this? This is going great. <laughs> okay, guys, we're back again here with Captain Joe. And uh, we just took a little water break and... Uh, you know, the next half here, I really want to get into Joe. We, we just covered uh, kind of how Joe got here, the history of the boat we're on. Um, but, you know, in our little break, Joe was talking about health. And I thought, man, that is just really something that should be mentioned, uh, particularly to, like, younger fishermen and guys listening. And, Joe, just go, go and tell these guys. Because, you know, first of all, how old are you, Joe? I'll be 76 July 17th this year. So Joe is 76. So I'll be 76. He'll be 76. He's one of the hardest working guys I know to this day, running circles around younger men. Uh, you know, and I, I, I just, I always look over and I'm always so impressed. And I mean, Joe was just talking here about, uh, you know, taking care of yourself. Joe, why don't you continue with your thought process on that? Well, I think I just like I just told you when we were off the record. I said you got to drink more water. You got to drink. You got to drink. I, I like that smart water, the alkaline water, uh, especially since I went through like major cancer treatment in the end of 2016, and uh, I uh, I had trouble hydrating after my chemo and my uh, radiation. And the only thing I could drink that my body would accept was that alkaline smart water. Regular water, I, I couldn't swallow it. And uh, the bottom line is, is the very minimum of water a day you're going to drink is two liters of good water. But if you can squeeze down three or four, it, flushing and cleaning, flushing and cleaning Any, is a big deal. Without a doubt. Any other advice for a young fisherman to try have any chance at the longevity that you've had? I mean, fuck, you're still going strong here. Well, well, I don't drink alcohol, and I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. I, I mean, I haven't had alcohol in decades. I, I can't say when I... But when I was younger, in my 20s and 30s, yeah, I did a little drinking, but I was never a heavy drinker. I, I actually, I kind of think I'm allergic to alcohol because I get sick. Re I drink wine, I get sick. 
I drink beer, I get sick. So it was, it was an easy choice for me. Right? It may actually be, it may have been your very blessing, honestly. The blessing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't have a peanut allergy, I have an alcohol allergy. Well, it may be the sulfites in the wine or the hops in the beer or whatever. I, you know, the alcohol has never set well with me. So that's about it. And of course, I was in my, I grew, I grew up in the Whole Earth Catalog as nutrition. Whole Earth Catalog was the hippie book of the 60s. Everything you eat has to be fresh. Don't buy anything in a box at a grocery store. This was like a sprout. magazine you would buy? What no, is the it was whole? the Whole Earth Catalog's a book. It's a book. I, I have my 1972 copy still. And and I, I wonder what happened to this generation I grew up in because all of us had the Whole Earth Catalog as a Bible. It was all about how to live healthy and what to eat. It was a tan book. I, we, I could show it to you. I got it in my storage. But we all live by the Whole Earth Catalog. 75% of what you eat should be picked fresh or picked live. Kill a turkey on the Big Island, kill a pig. In fact, one reason I moved to the Big Island is I was into the Whole Earth Catalog thing and I looked around and I said, okay, mangoes, papayas, bananas, avocados, loquats, South Point oranges, macadamia nuts, uh, lobster, opihi, scallops, any kind of fish you want. I says, you don't need money here. Water bubbling out of the soil, fresh water bubbling up. Right, so. So exactly what you need money for. And, and, I, and I felt safe. Well, it was kind of funny. Growing up in Southern California, I'd been through a couple nasty earthquakes, and I realized that the day you had an earthquake big enough to, to make the bridges collapse over the highways, the ship was going to hit the fan. You wouldn't be able to drive anywhere. People would be... That would be it. And it did. The Northridge earthquake collapsed a bunch of the overpasses. So I had reasons for getting out of there. I just... It was getting too crowded. And, and for the rest of your life, it wasn't a safe place. I still don't think it's the same place. Who knows? But anyhow, I was attracted to the Big Island, even though they had the volcanoes. And uh, but the main reason is, is it was easy living. It was an easy road to walk down. I liked to surf. I grew up surfing. The surfing was good. Unbelievable food. You didn't even have to buy it. And uh, nice weather. The water never too cold to surf. Yeah, I, I, it was a, more of a stress three thing. And I grew up, but I loved to fish, so why not? So that's pretty much the issue on my choice of going there. And then, of course, having this one guy from Kona buy a boat for his brother and then meeting Frank and Jerry and Senator Inouye and all those guys, it, it, it was actually an effortless transition. Would you have ever guessed when you were younger that you would one day be one of the longest running fishermen in Hawaii. Would you have ever guessed that as a kid? No. No. No, I wouldn't have. But when I was looking through my pictures to send to my son, I looked through this picture, 1956. I was 11 years old, standing in my front yard, with two three-foot barracuda and two small bonita. Bonita is like a skipjack, but cold water skipjack. Bonita in Spanish means pretty. And I compared that to Joe Jr. on his first tagging trip with Dave Itano 
the weather buoy too, helping Dave tag fish. And I looked at that picture of Joe Jr. Oh my God, look at how similar you two are. That is crazy. I'm gonna take a photo of these afterwards. Can you believe that? And I'm, we will post that with your story on my Instagram Isn't account. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. It's like you guys are twins. The eyes, the mouth, the nose. I mean, we are copies. That is amazing. What's really cool about that, too. And we're the same age in those pictures. Look at that. And also what's really cool is you've got a picture for the folks at home of, oh, the, the, old, of the old style weather buoys that are no longer in service. But yeah. we all loved. And yeah. Look at that. That is amazing. So, we had the Seamount Fishery, we had the, um, uh, the Weather Buoy Fishery, and uh, today you're longlining. But, there is something I wanted to ask you about, and this kind of leads into uh, somebody who has spent so many years around Hawaii. Uh, as things have changed uh, in regards to regulations and things like that, uh, today we find ourselves on the Double D, and although you still fish the Cross Sea Mountain, uh, you're set up to long line. And so can you kind of just talk, not even in general, because you specifically know, can you kind of tell the people the history of what's happened with the Hawaii market from the days of, you know, you catching fish on the Cross Sea Mountain to the long lining to the, the current, you know, the current state of our fishery? You know? Well, there was a lot of changes. There was a lot of changes. The, the, the biggest change, I think, was they went, was the jump from from the tarred rope that you pulled and coiled with a pinch puller, of course, to the early lingering pit and monoreel. So that, that was a big deal. For long linings. Long you mean lining. going from tarred rope to monofilament? Yeah, that was a huge thing. And then the invention of the shooter to get the long line deep enough so you could fish big eye instead of marlin and yellowfin and surface fish. You had to get away to get it down. But but backing up from there, I, I think the, what, the changes we had is we went from state control of the fishery to federal control of the fishery. And when did that happen? Well, I guess with the Magnuson Act, but I, I, didn't, really f I didn't really feel it. In other words, it didn't really affect me until until I had finished the double D, and I, I was, I was, I was back fishing the seventy footer on the cross and the weather buoy too, and the fishing was great, and it never, never even dawned on me I would want a long line, but because the fishing was just so consistent. Yeah, but but what what hurt us? What hurt us? What there was a couple of things that hurt us. One was a situation where. In Hawaii in 1995, they started bringing in the carbon monoxide frozen gas ahi cubes from the Philippines and then I guess Indonesia, then uh, South South Africa as well. So the imports, then they were... Yeah, we did, before 95, we didn't have imports. But going back from there, going back into like 80... When did you see a price drop with the 86. imports? Well, here's what we learned in '86. We had a uh, we had a United Airlines strike for almost two months, where they when they they carried 80 percent of the cargo out of Hawaii, 
and we had a uh, we had kind of a trauma on the Big Island because that summer we had a great marker yellowfin run, just a great marker yellowfin. Marker meaning over over hundred, hundred, over 100 pounds. And uh, we had always, of course, had the old fires at the old Kona dump. They never did put out. But June, Wait a July. Second. What does that mean? The dumps literally just used to burn. Yeah, the dump never stopped burning in Kona back in the eighties. Like everything, they just burned nonstop. They couldn't put it out. Really? Yeah, the what, heat what was, was generated. The spontaneous combustion. Anything you threw on the pile. So the, the pile was huge, piled with bulldozers, but the spontaneous combustion from the buried heat. So they, it wasn't like they were lighting it. So they would keep putting more trash on, and the thing would keep catching on fire. It burned for years. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, it burned for years. Uh, wow. Must have burned for ten years. No kidding. Yeah. Whoa. So the joke was when we had the big United Airlines strike is is we could, and we couldn't sell our tuna anywhere. You could fillet a yellowfin, and you couldn't give it away. Couldn't give away a couldn't yellowfin. Couldn't get a fresh yellowfin fillet. No, I mean everybody was saturated. Just like friends, family, everybody nope. just had fish. Couldn't even give it away. No, we canned all the fish. Draw the glass jars. No, no, we can't dry any more fish. You don't know where to put it. So we were back then. We had. We the joke was is we were barbecuing yellowfin in the Kona dump. We no. just the ones we couldn't sell. We just trucked over to the dump and threw them in the pile. My God, that's terrible. <laughs> Isn't that that's silly? That's silly. Think about where the time has gone, huh? Yeah, but but. Did it seem in your early we, careers? It, we never, we never had that happen with the big eye. That but, was just a. With the, but did, did it seem in your early years that the fish was infinite? That it just seemed like the fishing would never slow down. Never, and and you know what? The one thing we realized then, after that incident with United Airlines, and here's what a genius senator in a way was. He he comes to a meeting there and he says, "I'll never let this happen again." I says, "Are you going to stop it?" He says, "I'll tell you what." I'm going to have four different airlines carrying cargo in and out of Honolulu. United Airlines is never going to go on strike and shut Hawaii down again. So he... So they had a monopoly at the time of shipping. Yeah, they had a... Yeah, basically. They had 80% of the cargo out of, out of all of them. So he changed that. He just pushed for more airlines carrying cargo, this and that, and got us out of the strike zone, you know. Yeah, he was a wonderful guy for the fishery. So, when I when I look at the regulatory so, thing, though, hold on a second. So they had the strike; you couldn't get rid of a fish, and so you you couldn't even sell a fish. Now, how did that? Like that was kind of your first sign that there was something like a problem with the business model, or well, it let us know that 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 the fishery, if it expanded, we had to have, have a place for the fish to go. Okay, gotcha. And we could either gas fish here and freeze it. And they talked about putting in a flash freezer on the big island that would hold like 200 tons of frozen tuna. Gas, not gas, just the minus 40 degree yep. flash frozen. But they never did. But but Senator Inouye expanding the airline and different connections like Lufthansa would carry out and we could get into Frankfurt, Germany. And we just needed a, a better web to get our products out of here. Yep. And he was very instrumental in getting that together. I don't know what would have happened back then because obviously the regulations and stuff are a lot more free. But for the people that don't know this at home, so even though we import gassed fish into our country, 
you aren't even legally allowed to perform that process in the United States. Although we import exactly, the, we import the finished product exactly. But it, we import the finished product, but we're not even allowed to legally do it in the United States because the process has been deemed too dangerous, which is kind of crazy. Especially if you consider like you know the European Union, Canada, these other countries have all banned the importation of of this fish. We're the only country in the world that will accept it. Isn't that crazy? For yeah. So, but I'll tell you the I'll tell you the story of gas fish. I was there at the invention of it. A guy named Russ Roy and Bill Kowalski, that had uh, the uh, the ice plant. I was, next, hope, I was hoping you would tell this story. That had the ice plant. Uh, what was the name of it? Atlas Ice or something? Allied. Allied Ice, maybe 250 yards down the street from Volcano Isle Fish. And I knew Russ Roy real good. I brought in some yellowfin that were gray. And he goes, he, we cut them and he goes, well, what are we going to do with this? It's in the summertime. And the spawning yellowfin had gray meat. So you had these gray yellowfin. Yeah, I had these gray yellowfin, and it was late in the afternoon, and we went over and we cut one, one or maybe two, and uh, Russ and Bill were there. We these were, are 100-pounders. Yeah, at market, least, market right? yellowfin, okay, big yeah. fish. And it's very usual to have that white, light, gray, spotting yellowfin in June or July, and Kona, and wondering what the fuck you're going to what you're going to do with the fish. Oh, for sure, yeah. And, uh, and then uh, they had been smoking some fish. But the smoker was pretty much pow, it needed more. I think they were using Kiavi chips that they caught, mixed with some other stuff. So we cut it up and we filleted it up and Russ says, well, just throw it in the smoker. Just throw it in the smoker. And we all threw it in the smoker and left. But it, the smoker wasn't hot, but it, 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 it didn't really smoke them. But the thing about the remaining combustion there was creating carbon monoxide. So this was the first time in history carbon monoxide from a basically a burned out smoking process got to the surface and made the fish turn red with not enough heat to do a smoke. And the next morning Russ called Joe, get down here. I said, okay. I go down there. And we look at this red, yellowfin, bright red, cherry, like unearth, like unearthly red, maraschino cherry red, yellowfin, out of the smoker. Not cooked, still raw but red. So, did he go on to take that process and perfect it? Well, there wasn't much to perfect it. Actually, Russ wasn't the businessman that Bill Kowalski was. And maybe maybe Bill had a little more money backing him and stuff. And I was too stupid to realize what you had just discovered. What I just discovered, right? But Bill said, "Well, so you we didn't smoke it. We didn't smoke it, but we made a nice color. So we we tried it a little bit more. And yeah, hey, this is worked. so you literally saw the first gas fish ever, ever, ever. So, so the first gas fish ever, and a lot of people don't realize this, actually came out of Kona, Hawaii. Allied seafood." At Kona, Hawaii, the first gas fish ever. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And so where did they perfect the process? They took it overseas with them or something? Or no, was... no, 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 no. That isn't what Bill did. Bill Bill applied for a patent for a process that the FDA called GRASP, generally regarded as safe. He wasn't 
generally regarded, quote-unquote. He, he wasn't injecting carbon monoxide into the tuna to make it change color. That would come years later. Yes. He was cold smoking it. He, he had a hot smoke process, and here's my yellowfin from hot smoke. Right. It's brown and oily. Here's my yellowfin after the heat's gone, but it's still gassing a little. And it's cold smoke, he called it. He got a patent on cold smoke smoking fish, a 20-year patent on it. He was smart enough to fly back to Washington, D.C., hire a lawyer, go to the FDA, have the lawyer put the cold smoking in front of them, get it approved, and he got the he got the world the U.S. patent for cold smoking tuna. But he didn't do any. He didn't have the what they have now is cylinders of carbon monoxide injecting right. machines. The modern day is really high tech. I, high tech. Yeah, I actually got to witness it firsthand, uh, but I wasn't allowed to take any photos or anything. They like uh, in Tarawa, it's like super uh, proprietary, proprietary information, and they're really, really. Uh, they don't like to show you. They have like two different styles of gas. They have like a heavy gas and a light gas. And one is basically the fish is just kind of like you explained, where uh, it's basically it's just kind of like a cold smoke, and it's and the, it's basically it's saturated around with carbon monoxide. And then the other one they have is actually uh, where they have like a needle process, and they actually stick needles into the fillet and they inject it. And that's like what they do on that's called like heavy smoke, and that's on fish that are like particularly like not the best color or that they use they the, need a lot of carbon monoxide yeah, to bring them around that, that's when they actually need them to improve the color a lot of times the light gas is used on a fish that already has okay color or good color and then they use it to maintain it because a lot of people don't know this and, and but you would it stops the breakdown of the hemoglobin and so basically right. and this is why carbon monoxide is such a um, such a malicious kind of process co2 fish is because it takes away our natural senses to it takes it eliminates the odor and um it, it eliminates the odor for one and most people when they look at a fish you judge freshness of a fish you want to smell it you want to smell it now if you've taken away that smell right there it's already deceptive to to our yeah it's a deceptive thing and 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 i gotta tell you how deceptive color. that is i gotta tell you how deceptive that is i have a perfect incident and uh, I had a deckhand over, let me see, 15, about 20 years ago, on the Double D after 9-11, roughly 20 years ago, right after 9-11, when I brought Kiwalo Basin, came to, brought the Double D to Kiwalo Basin. Uh, names changed, I'll call him Mr. A, but he was a WAP from the East Coast, a bluefin tuna fisherman. And... Uh, he went, I left on a Sunday afternoon to go to the Cross Seamount with him. And he had eaten lunch at uh, Duke's yep, Sheridan. Yep. And he got on my boat. Down in Waikiki. Yeah, down in Waikiki. And he got on my boat and we went out fishing. And we were about three hours out of Honolulu headed for the Cross. And Sammy's so sick, he's got a fever, he's flashing, I'm turning around, coming back. And I said, he says, I don't know, I ate something at Duke's. I'm, it's making me sick. So I go, Sammy, what did you eat? He told me, I said, Sammy, Sammy, I'm going to give you some big Ziploc bags. Throw up in the Ziploc bags. Give me all your vomit. 
His girlfriend was a nurse at the hospital. So we, I, I told her, I get her on the cell phone when I get close. I says, I'm bringing Sammy in. He's really sick. He's vomiting. But he, he ate. I said, what did you eat? Oh, yeah, I was with Sammy. I said, did you eat? Did you have pokey? No, I didn't eat pokey. I says, you're not sick? No, I'm not sick. I says, well, I don't know. I'm afraid that something's wrong with Sammy. Maybe he picked up some bad bacteria. So he's violently sick. Violently sick. So, so I bring Sammy in, and I bring him in with the vomit bags. What made you think to do that? Well, because once he told me he'd eaten ga gas fish, I knew we weren't, he weren't. He didn't get it from Bill Kowalski. I'm wondering what what the story is, where the gas fish and deuce came from. Okay. Yep. I'm wondering where the pokey was obviously gas pokey, right? Right. So we bring him in, and she takes him to the hospital with the vomit bags. And it's nice that his girlfriend was a nurse. Talk about coincidences. She has the the vomit sent out for a biological study, and they find a bacteria. The fish was gassed in the Philippines in General Santos. They were able to actually check that? Wait, at a gas plant, no, that's where Deuce got it from. At a gas plant, at a gas plant, that the Agency for International Development with American money built for the Filipinos, and the bacteria the bacteria that made him sick, that were in that vomit, came from General Santos. Wow. And they nailed it. And they made about 30 or 40 other people. So she puts out the alarm that Dukes has got a problem. So the health inspectors go down there, they confiscate all the gas fish, find out where it is, you know, go through the whole thing. So Dukes that day that he was there eating and they were delivering out of that batch, made a shitload of people sick. So they tracked down everybody from hotel records and all that crap, and they got a hold of all of them. Yep. So they file a class action lawsuit against the Sheridan Hotel chain for making everybody sick. It cost them a huge amount of money. I'm talking like many, many millions of dollars. Millions and millions. Sammy was sick for like two months. Wow. Or maybe almost three months. So his settlement was like well, he bought a car, he bought a house in Honolulu with his settlement. It was like a half a million dollars. Wow. There oh, I, I'm sorry. His name wasn't Sammy. He's the WAP from right. the East Coast. Right. I'm not even sure that you can use that term either, but he's a gentleman from the East Coast. A gentleman from the East Coast. A gentleman from the East Coast, yes. So, so, so let me tell you about gas fish. Please tell us about gas fish. They, they were only allowed to take their payment in the settlement if they promised never to say where the bad gas fish came from. Came from the Sheridan Hotel and out of the gassing plant in General Santos. So that that's the problem with gas fish and quality. Right from the beginning, 20 years ago, we knew that the gassing process would would allow a fish to spoil and bacteria to live without any external sign that a normal person would smell it or not. No either. smell and no color. So no, both, yeah. it's totally deceptive. No spoiling. It's a totally deceptive product, period. And subsequent to that time, 
I have found out from talking to Bill, his product, his smoking product of the kind of fish we did way back then never had a problem, right? Right. Because we were, we, we were smoking fish that were caught that day. So it's fresh fish. So we were gassing a fresh, he was not gassing, he was cold smoking. See, there's a difference. Basically he was preserving. Versus he was using cold smoke to preserve. Right. Not a mechanized gassing process. But but the mechanized gassing process is dangerous and it's what they call collateral damage. In the United States, it's a $10 billion a year industry, I think, bringing in gas to them. When I, when I go to Rochester, Minnesota and go into the health food store, in an uppy place like that where everybody's got a PhD, yep. and I see imported from the Philippines the gas tuna, and I, and I don't see a sign up over it, which in Hawaii you're supposed to have a sign. Right, so legally it is supposed to say, um, well, this is one of those things with it too. So it is supposed to say uh, CO2 treated. Right, but but there's no laws on how little that can be. So like a lot of times, if you go to like a grocery store, like say like uh, like Foodland that uses a ton of gas fish, you'll actually find that like the uh, where it says like the CO2 treated. A lot of times you'll actually see that shit's like stacked up over the glass there. Like if you look like you know yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. If you actually see it, like I've seen that a lot. Like where they'll have like. Uh, you know, like buns or something for making fish sandwiches actually cover over the part where it's been treated with carbon monoxide. Yeah. There's no rules on how, there's no rules on how big the lettering has to be or anything. It's, it, yeah. it, you know, that that's part, of, that's part of the problem too, you know, like. Well, I can tell you this, that incident, that incident that I referred to with Sammy is not the only time that's ever happened. But the gas tuna fishery just figures they pay liability insurance on their product, and the settlements they've had to make are just a, the cost of doing business. But the but this other side of that is, why would you actually want to do business where you know you're going to make a certain number of people sick? Why 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 would you figure an insurance payment for making somebody sick is a is a a moral way to get out of of of, of actually selling a product that you know it's going to make a certain percent of people sick. But on the other hand... But, but, but you say uh, that... Look at, look at chicken. Look at spinach. People get... What do they call that? Uh, yeah, what is that food born? Uh, salmonella. Salmonella from yeah. eating spinach pig somewhere. Right. And people die from eating chicken with salmonella that they don't cook enough. What? Right. 160 people a year die. Right. So you're going to have so, some. You are going to have some collateral damage. Yeah. The, well, especially the further that you disconnect yourself from the process, the higher the pro that's going to be. The, yeah. the less traceability. Yeah. The further removed you are from gathering your own food, you're going to experience more things than that. But yeah. part of the thing that's unfair for the general public is that we in our society have gotten to the point where we expect the people that are purveyors of food to provide us a safe product, but sometimes they don't necessarily even know that they're serving something that's unsafe. You know, that that's that's part of the problem. You know, it's the whole chain. Like there's no part of me that believes a restaurant sells a, a fish or something thinking that someone might get sick. No. But that, like, especially if you're new to the restaurant business or new to the fish business, you might not even know the history. I mean, the things that you're telling me, how, how many people know that history? Like I know some of it because I know you and I, I've been heavily involved in this industry, but that's a lot of stuff people just don't even know exists every day around them. Like, 
Well, it's like anything else in this day and age. It's it's all about money and controlling the information that goes with it. This is very it's, true. It's, it's information control. I don't believe in America. If 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 we had good information that gas fish sales would be profitable, wouldn't be? It would be. What would put it out of business is, is people just wouldn't. There was a guy named Mike Thompson who actually died of a heart attack. Ooh. Did I fuck you up? Perfect. Still going. Uh, that died of a heart attack delivering fish to KTA up in Waimea, tragically. But we had him do a test. He put cold smoke ahi and extra up in, up, up in the hill by Stan's Fishery years ago. Yep. And he put that next to fresh local ahi, but not cold smoke. And the fresh local wasn't as red as the cold smoke. Yep. And he, in like a month, he ran a test. You know how much cold smoke he sold? Not, not a piece. Really? Nobody up Malka and Kona would even think of buying that. They just wanted the fresh. So, but somebody, that's maybe somebody different than walking into a Foodland store and not inspecting the label, right? Well, not, because not because he had a sign, he had a sign, this is processed with a cold smoke giving it carbon monoxide gas, and this is unprocessed. Which one do you want to buy? It didn't matter if the bill for the one, the natural one, was twice as much a pound. Because we played the game, right? Right. This is four ninety nine. This is eight ninety nine. He never sold a single piece of that because the information was well, the, was, right, was right, in right, face, right in their they face. Just, they didn't want it. Right. Right in their face. So, so it's it it it's it's not supposed to be deceptive, right? In marketing, that's probably the legal issue here. It's not that everybody eating spinach or chicken or something they because of one reason or another uh, ends up getting sick, it's that if, if the label was bold enough to tell people what they were actually eating, they probably wouldn't buy it. Right. It, it's a labeling issue. I, 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 I agree with that. And you know, there there are, um, there, there's a, uh, a new Netflix uh, documentary that's trending right now called Seaspiracy. I don't know if you've heard anything about it. No. And uh, and this is a perfect tie-in to some of the questions I want to ask you about. Now, this video is extreme in the fact that its suggestion at the end is that the only thing you can do for the fisheries uh, to actually truly help the ocean is to not consume fish. But That's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. But I will tell you this. And... and I normally have my guard up with documentaries, and I can hear some people cringing right now. But that was the best fishing documentary I have ever seen as far as accuracy when talking about how corrupt the government is, how corrupt the environmental groups are, how corrupt the fishery management things are. I mean, it's the only, it's the only documentary I've ever seen that actually addresses the fact that all those groups on some level actually work together, you know, like, and so it, of course. It, it, it's, it, it's amazing that, uh, you know, it's amazing that, yeah. that, 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 that happens. So it, it's, it's neat hearing you talking right now and kind of telling us, you know, kind of some of that history of that that's happened. 
But one thing I've seen, and I really wanted to ask you about, because here we are in your seventy footer. You've, you've been on you've you've been on the twenty footers. You worked your way up, and um, for me, I grew up in New England, and I started going to fishery management meetings when I was thirteen years old, and I basically watched the collapse of the inshore fisheries uh, as far as going from smaller boats, like basically the, the little man got pushed out, like, and it became more, yeah. more and more corporate. And I see that happening here today in a lot of ways. You take a look around and what's the average length boat in this harbor? 85, 90 feet? And in long line boats? Yeah. No, only, only because of... Uh, the Oh, 77. 77 rule. That's right, because of the regulation. So, but, but I mean, just looking around, okay, so, and you probably remember this. We look around the harbor right now, we are tied up, and on the back deck, I see probably seven crew members. I see seven crew guys on the back of two different boats right now. Not one of them is a U.S. citizen. Do you remember the day the foreign crew arrived? How yes. Did, how did that come to be? How did, how did our fleet end up with foreign crews and then and first of all full disclosure i currently have foreign crew so I, I i don't want you to think that this is me hating on the crew but it is my belief that you basically have to have foreign crew these days to stay competitive in the field that we do and i also believe that would not be the case if there wasn't foreign crew here in the first place so i would love to know how did the foreign crew arrive how did that happen well, uh, look at my look at the first trip I ever took. In my skiff, catching a jumbo big eye Thanksgiving day or evening, Thanksgiving evening, out of Kona, and the equivalent I got paid for it. I got paid. I got paid. What did it, what was it? Did I tell you five fifty or five seventy somewhere? A yeah. lot of money, right? Yep. For nineteen seventy seven or seventy eight. So, so if 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 you if you wanted. The economics in this fishery to work out without foreign crew, there'd be a bunch of changes. Number one, you couldn't import gas fish into the United States. That, but, that would have to but, end. If you wanted to get rid of foreign crew, you'd have to get rid of gas fish. Okay, before we even talk about problems surrounding them, how did they get here? Why is foreign crew allowed to even work on these boats? Like, how did that happen? Well, I, I, that's a good question. I fought against it desperately. They had scoping meetings at the King Cam on the Big Island. And uh, we didn't have foreign crew until the Vietnamese fleet back in 86, 87 was having a lot of trouble with the rednecks in Texas and Louisiana. And things are getting violent down there. And as you know, Honolulu is a pretty Asian town. And they, they, uh, they brought in American boats and American Vietnamese, and these are hardworking people. I'm not criticizing them, but they they brought them in, and they were once once the fence went up. Wait a second. So we had they brought that fleet in from so the Gulf. A, a, a fleet of boats left the Gulf that were basically pushed out of Texas or something, right? Yeah, out of the Gulf. Out of the Gulf, they showed up here like a flotilla. Is yeah. what I heard. They showed up uh, all together one day, yeah, right? Well, not all. Yeah, but in a month or two. In a month, they showed up. And so they were hardworking, they were doing, but then they brought in their relatives or something? Where, where does the foreign crew come into that picture? Well, the foreign crew comes into the picture that they, they moved here with their families, right? In other words, 
they they weren't local here. In other words, I had sons born here that went fish me, who fished with me. We had local. Uh, we had a local fishery. We had a local aqua fishery. Who was in that fishery for the cannery? It was in Coral Sea. It was Japanese immigrants. In other words, we had a we had a, a Hawaiians. Uh, listen, my Hawaiian friends will tell you like Jesse did or whatever. Hawaiians are fishermen. We're tuna fishermen. We're Apello fishermen. So we, we had a strong, natural fishing community. But when we brought in a foreign fleet, they, they were not our indigenous, indigenous fishing community. In other words, a, a, a boat arriving from the Gulf and looking to get a, a fisherman wasn't going to go to some Hawaiians living in Middle East and say, come over to Honolulu and fish with See, I mean, ah, so, so the question is... So they had a problem sourcing people to work for them. Yeah, exactly. Ah, I see. It was, how are we going to source people to work with us? And when they when they went to the Mono Spool, which was 86 or 87, and the foreign boats, not foreign, U.S. vessels came in, and they wanted to source crew, the question is, they could bring people from Guam, Saipan... Uh, they had to have U.S. residency at that time. Well, there was, look, historically Alaska, even back then and decades before, has always brought in Filipinos to can the salmon harvest. So importing foreigners to, to help in a fishery was not a new idea, right? Okay. So it, it wasn't, it was, so, so that was the issue. The issue is, is, uh, the Vietnamese that came here had to acclimate their way into Honolulu and and you know how locals are they don't, locals just don't cuddle up to you in a, in a day right takes a while for yeah, them to warm up sometimes yeah. it, 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 uh, it's understood though I, yeah, I, I, exactly. under, I understand why it's like that you know so many people come and go and so many people don't necessarily have the best interest for them and for the islands in my opinion like a lot of people take 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 and don't give back to Hawaii so I, I understand sometimes why there is that guard up. Because historically they haven't been treated that good on some of these transactions. Yeah. So I understand. So so here we go. We, we, we bring in a foreign crew. We don't have limited entry. The council hasn't passed it. Now why, when we had a scoping meeting down at the King Cam, and I, and I, and I swear to this day they just intentionally lied to my face. But now I'm beginning to realize maybe that's not true. I'm beginning to more think when the boats came in when, you know, when a hundred boats came in and most of them out of Gulf and most of them owned by Vietnamese Americans uh, and some of the local boats were Korean, Japanese and Hawaiian here that they had to blend in with and they had scoping meetings on all over the state about how they're going to enter the fishery, and they were on a state book at the time. We didn't have them on a federal fishery. Still all state, state all state operate. stuff. So then, then we're switching over to a federal fishery and limited entry, right? Because it's it's getting a little scary, right? Because the where's all this fish going now? You got an influx. You well, got the big problem boats. we have is is the is the imported fleet from the Gulf was throwing gear in the traditional trolling Ikashibi route. So these are locals fish. So these guys actually, when they first showed up, they're throwing long line gear right off the beach with the small boats. Yeah, and then you know, and then the shooting starts and the chopping up gear and the the fight, the fighting and the so, whole deal. So there was gear wars. Gear wars. 
And there was violence, there was gunshots. So the issue was then, we're going to do two things. We're going to put up a fence to move these guys out, and we're going to When you say a fence for the people at home, you mean an area they have to be outside? Outside. Not the 12-mile limit and not a 200-mile limit, but, but outside any traditional fishing grounds that, that we were fishing before. So, okay, so they do that. And I, I can remember at the time, uh, somebody contacted me, and I was at a meeting, and they said, Joe, they were, they're going to go to live in an entry. You should apply for your permit. So I applied for my permit to Longline, which only meant you had to set over a mile. Yeah. So it was nothing to set over a mile of gear. It was nothing. So, okay, I applied for a permit, and I got a permit. But I was catching so many fish, I thought, why would I do this? So, I'll you, so, I'll so you got a Longline permit, but you weren't really throwing gear yet. I had thrown some one and two mile sections. Just trying it out. Because the Leslie's were throwing eight miles and this and that. And traditionally, at times, we, we baited with live apello. Okay. And we'd throw a mile and a half with 50 live apello on it or something. So we, we did inshore long lining traditionally in our group, baiting a certain way, but n never to the point where anybody got violent. Right. But these guys, especially when the reel came out, we're setting first 10, then 15, then 20. The issue, Miles. Yeah. yeah. So the issue is, if you're going to throw that much gear, you got to have people moving the gear, the buoys and the snaps and the baits. And right. Somebody's got to be hauling. You're, you're going to move a lot of gear. One reason we never really worried about foreign crew is we caught so much fish without throwing a lot of gear. We'd throw 50 hooks with live appello. You get a lot of fish, right? Right. You, uh, you didn't even need to throw 100 hooks. And maybe you only had 60 Apello that you caught that night anyway, so you'd just go bait them, right? Right. But not these guys. These guys were more, because they had fished in the Gulf, they were more into the factory-style fishing. Be before then, we didn't have factory-style fishing, except Aku, if you call that a, a factory style. Right. And so for the people at home that don't know this, the Aku fleet that used to exist that's no longer here... Uh, was a cane pole fishery where literally they would live bait fishery. They, yeah, they would they would fish with live bait and jack poles, which are like these long bamboo. Originally, they were bamboo. Yeah, they were far west, but uh, bamboo poles where they would pull the fish up over the side. Uh, maybe some, you've seen some of the videos, um, but basically they used to catch cannery grade uh, fish. There was a cannery. The Coral here. Sea had the best can skip jack in the world. And it was all all caught right here. Yeah. And, of course, the state of Hawaii decided they were going to shut down everything because Hawaii was going to be a tourist destination. They weren't interested in, a, in continuing this kind of fishing, the cannery fishing. Right. Two kind of folds happened there, right? Like, one, the bait source got decimated. The, yeah. the nehus that they needed yeah. to catch them, That's uh, true. It, it got very difficult to catch the bait. And then at the same time, from what I, I remember... I had talked to Mr. Goto before he had passed that the regulations got uh, very difficult to keep that stuff going. The state just made it harder and harder on them. Yeah, because they wanted to squeeze the fishery out. Right. They just, they just, which is bureaucrats. Which isn't that different today. What a lot of people don't realize is the state of Hawaii's general government is super anti-fishing. Like exactly. A lot of people don't realize that. They think, oh, it's an island. It's an island nation. You know, like they fish. They eat like. The Hawaii residents eat two and a half times uh, the average fish compared to our mainland counterparts. But the funny part is, is that our government 
doesn't actually support fishing, and so it, it's pretty well, Lin, Linda Lingle was a perfect example of a governor. She said, we'll just shut down the fishery. But where we, oh, we'll just import fish. I mean, she said that point blank. I mean, she right. was that, that blatant about it, right? A yeah. lot of people went, holy shit. But, but you know, so, so here you go. You're, you're moving into a factory-style fishery right. with an imported fleet, right. which had local gun battles with the inside guys, now moved out to a fence. And they're going, well... How far was the fence, the first one? Like 50 miles or something? Yeah, 50 to 75. Yeah. They had know, to about stay where the fence... They haven't changed the fence. The inside fence. The, the one that you have to stay out of. They, right. There was one section on the east where they dropped it in, but then they discontinued it. Right, right, because of the false killer whales. They, yeah. Yeah, so, right, I remember that. So there was other issues there, but, but, but... So we go through a long transition period, you know, through the 90s, through, you know, say from 1990 to, I don't know, when do you really, 2015 or 16. But when do you really see the foreign crew boat showing up? Like, when do you really start seeing the foreign crew on the boats? Like, because today you look around, there's oh, hardly... by 1990. By 1990. Yeah. I was going to say, because you look around today, there's hardly anyone that's actually local working on these boats, aside from captains, you know? Well, and some of those are just paper captains. The actual real captain is a foreign crew as well. Well, I know. That's another thing a lot of people don't realize in this fleet is that there are, there are on some of these boats, and I'm not trying to talk bad about them, but on some of these boats, the captain is actually a... A, a U.S. citizen. That is not a U.S. citizen. But, but, there, but there's a, there is a U.S. citizen on, on, board, on board who is just paid to basically be the token captain because... A thousand bucks a week to lay there and play his video games. Yeah, a lot of times it's somebody that just is okay with being paid a grand a week or whatever just to lay around, couldn't be employed with anything else, but on paper he's the captain, so like one of these other foreign guys can actually run the boat. It's crazy, but true. So the, the, the deal with the foreign fleet, I, I can remember objecting to it at a meeting at the King Cam. And what we were objecting to a couple of things. We're going to limited entry, and here's how the government at the time, say 1986, represented the foreign fleet coming in. Here's what they told us. We're going to go to limited entry, number one. Number two, the foreign fleet coming in are swordfish boats. They will not be, ever be allowed to fish tuna. These are the government agents at the meeting. Okay, so you're sold that these guys are gonna be targeting swordfish and not interfering with your tunas. They're gonna they're gonna issue two styles of limited entry permits, one for swordfish and one for tuna. And they'll issue so many tuna permits and so many swordfish permits. This is this is put your hand on the Bible, this is what we're gonna do. So we said, okay, if you're gonna issue tuna permits, these are bigger boats, if they want to fish swordfish above thirty degrees and export all over the world swordfish. We never fished them, and it's not a fish people in Hawaii eat anyway. Right. They don't want to eat a swordfish caught up way up there. They want their fresh local fish. Right. So so that was the deal. So these are the these are that that's why I say at my first thought these government people were point blank liars. But what what I realize now, as I've watched that whole history, say from 1986 till now, is we've gone through generations of fishery managers here. And they work for the government, they're federal employees, they come in from Washington, D.C. A boss 
gives them an agenda to come and explain the meetings here. But that boss at NOAA, National Marine Fishery Service, is uh, who's the Secretary of Commerce? You get a new president, he appoints a different one. In other words, you've got a, you've got a rotating chain of command at the top who, through different agencies in the government, the Department of Commerce, Department of Labor, creates rules and regulations that flow downhill to Hawaii. So this guy that, that was at that meeting, this, this guy, maybe he's 55 years old, saying, this is what we're going to do. You can take it to the bank. Okay, 100 tuna permits, 100 swordfish permits. Limited entry. It's a done deal, right? And he says, yes, that's going to be what it's a done deal. But a year or two later, this guy's retired, moved to a different apartment. We've got a change of president. We've got a new secretary of commerce. And it's kind of like what we're experiencing now with a change of president, right? It's at the border. Right. So now we've got a different guy. Who doesn't have the same thoughts. Who wasn't given the same directions from his boss. Right. And he and he says, well, I'm going to issue, I promise these guys 100 ahi permits and 100 swordfish permits. And his boss says, oh, just fuck that. Just issue 200 permits. Right. Who, who cares what they're for? Just... Hey, we're real busy guys here. What do those people in Hawaii care? It's just issue 200 permits. It's a huge deal here. But that guy making the rules in D.C. Doesn't affect him. Well, his mind doesn't comprehend the situation. Nothing you could tell him that he would understand his interaction with the locals on the scene. Right. With a stupid thing like that. Because right? he's so disconnected by so many degrees, he would never understand the impact it has on the inshore fleet. Exactly. So. Or the or the or the marketing and the legitimacy. And you see, this is why we never cared if the Vietnamese had got a hundred swordfish permits and were fishing outside the two hundred and flying in Vietnamese or Filipinos or whatever, Taiwanese, we wouldn't care. Put them on their boats and take them up to the swordfish grounds and fish. Who would care? Nobody. Nobody, because nobody was targeting swordfish anyways. But that guy was a brand new fisher here. Nobody was targeting him. It was an export fishery. So you have a foreign fleet come in to do an export fishery with foreign fishermen, right? Fine. Give them their 100 permits. Give us our that wasn't what happened. That isn't what they did. When they finally issued the permits, somebody just said, oh, just give them all a permit. Let them decide what fishery they want. So that way they were allowed to tuna fish or swordfish. Yes. And now today we find them all basically... See, what happened with the swordfish, and this goes back decades, when I met a guy, uh, Paul Atchitoff, the swordfishermen started interacting with the turtles. We know that up north where they were fishing, there's a big turtle interaction. And right, they catch a lot of turtles. Endangered turtles. And, and the turtle people go into federal court, and they're represented by Earth Justice in Achitoff, and he gets an injunction shutting down the sword fishery. So now you've got a federal injunction closing the sword fishery, but you issued 200 permits. If they had a separate permit for swordfish, they would have been shut down. Well, they would have been shut down, but the federal government would have had to buy their boats and pay them when they shut them down. 
Ah, so See? so now they all became tuna fishermen. Exactly when the shutdown came. They just as well, we'll all just fish tuna. So and that brought the foreign fleet into the tuna fleet. And so the, the foreign guys. So the, the foreign tuna guys fleet. went from being in the sword feet swordfish fleet, nobody cared because they were fishing for swordfish. But then one day, because of federal regulations... One day, a federal judge says, I'm going to close this fishery, you're killing too many endangered turtles. So then we find... That's a long time, decades ago. So then we find the foreign crew in the tuna fishery, and ever since, it has not been a play, even playing field for the local fishermen. Yeah, so what it did, what it did... Uh, like this year, the sword fishery is going gangbusters. The two previous years, they hit their turtle quota, like, in six weeks. That's not good. Yeah, so they're they're closed, right? Right. So I can remember, I can remember I can remember the day the federal judge signed the order closing sword fishing due to the turtle tank. The first time it ever happened here. And and we all thought we all thought, well, they'll just buy out the swordfish boats now. No, they didn't buy them out because they didn't have a distinct permit. They didn't buy them out, so they all became tuna fishermen. Yeah, with the sword fishery closed. So what that did is, here's what that did. It took the price of tuna and cut it cut it in half because everybody was fishing it. We were flooding the market. So we had gas fish coming in. We had, we had uh, the swordfish fleet now all fishing tuna. So these guys are throwing more, trying to make a living, they're throwing longer and longer gear and more and more hooks. So we got more gear in the water. And pushing the price down. So now, because the prices, since the prices come down, they feel they got to throw more hooks because now they need more weight to make money, which also in turn makes the market flooded all the time, which is also Cuts the price in half. Cuts the price down. So now you're just volume fishing. Yeah. Which market's flooded by big boats all the time. The inshore guys have no chance. Yeah, well, it's even a little bit worse than that because when you set that many hooks inshore, as you know, the false killer whales don't live up on the swordfish zone. That's where the turtles live. But when you squeeze everybody inshore around the big islands, then you're going to get false killer whale interactions. And with the genetic studies and everything, and counting them, this is going back decades. Right. Now you're... Now you're you've got a fleet that when they were fishing swordfish, they said a thousand hooks. You had a local fleet. Fishing tuna, setting 750 hooks, which jumps to 2,000, to 2,500, to 3,000, to 3,200, to 3,700, to 4,200. Right. So you go up the scale. Well, what happens when you go up the scale in hooks is you have so much gear in the water, even locally now, turtles are running into it. Right, because there's so got much a, stuff running in there. It, it's the statistical average of so much shit laying out there, right? Right. And the fact that you have to, you're, you're trying to make ends meet in a falling market with the prices going down. Right. You're not, you're not going to have a smile on your face like I did the first week I ever Ikushibi big, big guy out of Kona and went on Polani Road and spent $17,000 and bought an acre and a half of property. With my earnings from, the, from, from Thanksgiving till about the 5th of December. Right. And by the time it was New Year's, I was buying everything to put in a driveway in a garage. Yeah, that's never going to happen today. See, see, the problem is this. 
you go back and look and look at the transcripts and you look at the recordings of the meetings at the King Cam back in say 1985 or 6 I don't know the winter but back in that era and you will see the promises made by the federal fishery management on this fleet coming in and what they would allow them to do and you realize that the that the huge mistake and I'm not saying the guy talking to us was a bold-faced liar I, I I've had that feeling that son of a bitch was a bold-faced liar. But I realize now, he, he looking at getting older and looking at how governments work, is that we have shifting management at the top in Washington, D.C., making a decision that dramatically affected a local fishery without even knowing what they were doing. Let me ask you, though. So you got people on the, on the top that are consistently changing. But one thing I've heard echoed for years and years by just about every fisherman I know says Westpac is totally corrupt. It uh, is. I, you would agree with that? I mean... Well, I'll tell you why I would agree with it. Here's the story. And for those of you who the don't Magnuson know... Act. What does Westpac stand for? Western Pacific Fishery Management Council. Right. And every fisherman I know just about says there's corruption through and through. And I've always wondered why that story isn't told. Well, here, here's, here's a couple issues. When was the Magnuson Act passed? I think 76. Okay, 76. When did I start fishing 77? In, in, and, we, and we're fishing nighttime big eye out of Kona in the winter. And then all of a sudden, you've heard the story, I'm into the cross seamount fishery and the big eye there and everything. So with that picture of my son, who's now 34, almost 35, and he's 11 years old, and Dave, he's with me and Dave Itano, tagging Big Eye. The, the thing with the Magnuson Act is it specifically said that changes in the management of a fishery have to be done according to science. So, the point is this. If you're going to change the management in a fishery and bring this fleet in and you promise you're going to issue two separate federal permits and sword fishery is a well-established fishery with a market and you're going to bring them in and you're going to move them up to the 30 line or above. And you're going to follow the Magnuson Act. You've already got turtles listed as an endangered species. It's all in the books, the records. You go up there and you assess the turtle population. Okay. And determine whether moving 100 boats into that fishery is even legal. According to the Magnuson Act. Is that a legal or illegal act? Right. And then, let's just say you determine that it's not going to be a problem with the turtles, but because you made a bad assessment. And then Paul Achatoff's in federal court and presents evidence to a judge, and they close the fishery because Noah made a bad assessment. Everybody can make a bad assessment. Right. I mean, we're not saying they're criminals. But what we're saying is, we have the Magnuson Act. so. Now what we want to do is we want to make assessment of the big eye fishery, okay? Yes. So it's like 1990, so 31 years ago, okay? And the guys uh, all pretty much retired now, old like me, Dave and Kurt Schaefer and John Hampton and SBC go, well, we've never done a tagging project on big eye tuna. We don't have a clue. So, 
we go back to the council. We go to now we got the council because we got the Magnuson. Okay, so Westpac came from the Magnuson. Yeah. Okay. So we go back to the council, and he said, "We said, well, you got to manage this fishery. Uh, what's what's your data on the big eye? How old do they have to be to spawn? How long do they live? You know, the basic right. facts you need to manage a fishery." What's the population? Where's the spawning area? The range? Everything. They said we don't know anything. Well, I said, you issued a hundred limited entry permits for a fishery that you know nothing about. Right. Here and there. Right. So they. Gave so they. So they. I'll tell you something. If if Westpac and Kitty, and I think this is probably Kitty that did this, told the guys when who, they were. Who is Kitty? This is Kitty. She's. She grew up, uh, funny, she grew up with Senator Inouye's. They were, they were school so buddies. She's the head of Westpac, is that right? No, she's the executive secretary. She worked for Senator Inouye as an assistant, a legislative assistant. And when they passed the Magnuson Act, he gave her the job running the, as the executive secretary of the council. So when it got down to the road to the council that the federal government was going to issue the fishing permits, and instead of going 100 for swordfish and 100 for tuna. I think it was Westpac that says, oh God, that's just too complicated. And besides that, we don't know anything about either of these fisheries. Who knows? We've never checked the turtles. We don't know the spawning. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Just make one permit. It was probably Westpac that did that. You'd have to go back. I'm sure it's in the minutes if you wanted to research it. It may if, have not have been something... If you could get your hands on it. That's been one of the problems I've found with any of my own personal research is that stuff is they made don't want to so difficult to, get. to find anything. It's a Freedom of Information Act. It's a FIFA. Yeah, it's Freedom of Information Act. If you have a lawyer and you know the six people to talk to to get that information, it's... It's, it's, it's there. It's recorded. It's just not that easy to get. It's recorded in my mind because I was there at those meetings, right? Right. I was so shocked that they didn't issue two separate permits. I was like, what? Are you kidding me? What are you going to do? One permit? I'm never going to fish swordfish. What do I need a combined permit for? I'm never going to go above 30 degrees. Right. It's never going to happen. I'm a local fisherman. Anyhow, so I think, I think it's probably Westpac that forced this nightmare on us. So anyway, so we have... So you're going to get sued. The environmentalists are going to sue you. You've got the Magnuson Act that tells you you need to have science. They're going to go into a lawsuit with federal court and say, Judge, where's the science? Judge, we hired some Greenpeace people to go look at the turtles, and we hired them. Here's the only science. Right. We, we got the science. I believe the term, what is the term? Best available science. Best available science. Right. And Westpac has nothing. And these other guys that went up there and cruise around and invoke on something. They go. lay in front of the judge, right? Best available science. So I gotta say though, recently it seems like best available science is being used to not appropriately, if you will. Like I, I'm having personally a lot of problems with the strike marlin issue coming up. Like a lot of fishermen seem to be in denial that striped marlin are, are in trouble. Would you agree they're in trouble? Well, what's the story? You know, it's the coast of Baja was like a mecca from San Diego to Cabo San Lucas. They've got 1,100 miles of Baja. 
right. that's with striped marlin ground to the max. But that's a different biomass. That's the problem. That, well, I don't know that. See. Yeah, yeah. So that's is, the, is that, so that, the wine mass. Different so that's from a different. That correct. So the the one in the Western Pacific, that's the one we're battling over. The Eastern is is doing. Eastern Pacific is doing well, but our stock is in trouble. Well, I worry about the elephant too because the only elephant ever tagged in Hawaii was tagged by Kurt Schaefer on the double D on the cross sea mount at 10 pounds and captured on the 60 mile bank off San Diego at a at like seven six years later almost dead but a big one yeah yep. a, a big elephant and it was recaptured in the summer that's, a that's the only single fish from anywhere in the Hawaiian archipelago that we tagged a yellowfin. I'm not talking big guy. Yep, yellowfin. Yellowfin that has ever been caught on the West Coast. So it makes me think that the local striped marlin population we have here probably doesn't mix with the West Coast population. Probably does not. No, it does not. I don't think they do either. And I'll tell you one thing from my time, and one of the things that keep reoccurring, the average striped marlin inside is unquestionably getting smaller. We're seeing less of them. And they are definitely smaller, even in my time. And then you talk to guys like, for me, well, what about you in your career? Has the average striped marlin gotten a lot smaller? Well, the first average, the first striped marlin I ever caught, say 1978, was on a live apello off Red Hill outside between Keho and Kealakekua Bay. There's a hill called Red Hill. Yep. And I had a pello fish that night, and I had some live apello, and I had thrown some line for yellowfin. I had a couple of pello left. So I put out a hand line with an Apello on it. <laughs> Striped Marlin came up and ate it. It was a big one. It was like 285. 285. And I had to have them on a hand line. Yep. But that's that's, a long, that's 1980. I've, I've never even seen one close to that in my career, weight or anything in Hawaii. Ever. Ever. I yeah. mean, I, I've, I've seen one in Australia like that. And yeah. I've seen one off Costa Rica that big, and this is in years of traveling. Yeah. I have never seen anything even close to that. Well, back then, Hawaii. they probably they probably were along the Kona Coast that size, but I've seen 90-pound big eye there, right. caught off Mililee on a live apello. Yeah. I mean, 90-pound Mai Mai. When, when are you? How long has it been since you've seen a ninety-pound Mai Mai here? I've never seen. <laughs> yeah, one. it's a big one. Never. It's a big one. Yeah. No, I think. And that all goes back to that. I actually think Mai Mai's are in trouble. That's the one. That's another fish. I think. I'm, I'm wondering about that. You know, besides striped marlin, I th I think Mai Mai is the fish that I've seen the biggest uh, the biggest decline, in, at least in the time I've been here. Like I haven't really seen a whole lot. I see like ebbs and flows with the tunas on the cross. And I know it's probably a fraction from that. what you saw. But the uh, the Mai Mai's, there's so many less Mai Mai's than what I used to see on the buoys. That one really concerns me. I feel like that's the one we probably should be looking at before it's like... I mean, as it is, I mean, most of our Mai Mai's are already coming in from out of the country. You know, so what... I talk to guys on the East Coast that are telling me they, they, um, they, they're seeing problems on the East Coast with Mai's. I'm wondering if Mai Mai's aren't like the tattletale, like the frogs. You know, they have such a short life expectancy. I wonder if we need to be paying closer attention to the Mai Mai's. I worry about them. Would you say you see a lot less of those in your oh, career? Oh, yeah, definitely less now and smaller. I mean, back in those days of 30, 40, 50, you know, say a 40 to a 60, whenever you hit a school of Mai Mai, you got big ones. There were some big ones there. Big bulls and big females. Yeah. 
now it's just peanuts all the time everywhere. I haven't caught a 40-pound Mai Mai in so many years, I couldn't even tell you when oh, it was. Really? No. Wow. No? I couldn't even tell you the last time. I'd have to, I'd have to look back in the logbooks. And, uh, and even at that, in my career, not too many that are that big. You know, I think most of the bigger ones are topping out in the... Yeah, no, it's been a while i mean there's a there's a there's yeah yeah well, there mean, may be a problem with the striped marlin and the Mai Mai. i i i don't really own a troll anymore and you you know throwing gear dangling a Mai Mai will come up and eat a dangler but ono's don't ono's don't no don't do that i don't know about I, I can't really say i don't spend enough time fishing for ono's either but the fish i definitely see in, are in trouble are striped marlin and mahis so joe how do we fix this? You've seen it. How do we fix the mess we're in? How well, I, I'll tell you what. The council, the council, and I could spend a couple hours talking about this of all the meetings I've gone to and everything. I've gone to meetings where I'm, I'm fishing. I got the boat to maintain. I got young kids, this and that. I say I'd like to make a presentation. I've already been tagging fish with Dave. Dave Atano, yeah, which is a tuna fish expert, expert. world world expert guys, right. I've done the tagging down to the equator. I spent months with them on my boat. We're trying to manage everything. And I, you know, I go to a council meeting or an SEC meeting, the statistics meeting. And I say, guys, I got like a 10 minute presentation. I want to give you some information. Okay, well, we'll try and squeeze you in. So I'm there like nine in the morning. We go for a lunch break. I said, look guys, it's gonna take five minutes. Do you want me to, well, well, maybe we'll get you today. We'll get you, we'll get to you, we'll get to you. Yeah. And they're doing a bunch of stuff that I'm not really interested in. Uh, bottom fishing. The Hanover, the Hanover Sea Mountain past Curry Island, or right. bottom fishing in Guam, or what's going on in American Samoa, or all something that's not that relevant to Hawaii, but it's not, being, yeah, but, but the meeting's being held in your back door in Hawaii. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I've I've never been to a meeting where I felt I was ever given realistic treatment to present what information I had at the council or at SBC, at the council of the scientific meetings. And I finally gave up. I said, look, I'm not going to sit here for two days waiting to talk for five minutes. Well, what you just expressed is one of the things I hear expressed over and over again is that they don't leave any public time for comment. I myself have experienced this. I sat all day one time for like all day for public comment. And as it came time for public comment, they, they were closed all, the meeting. They, they, they were all packing up their stuff and they're leaving. And I'm like, "Excuse me, I'm sorry. On the agenda, it says there's public comment now." Yeah. And like, literally, like one person's like, "Oh, I gotta go," and the other person's like, "I gotta go too." I'm like, so they wouldn't even stay around for my public comment. But I was willing to give all day listening to this stuff, and they didn't even. And then for like, other islands, it didn't matter to you at all. Yeah. And and they're like, "Well, you need to speed this up." So literally, long story short, they're like, "Okay, you can have three minutes." I'm like. I just gave you guys eight hours or whatever of listening to this other stuff. And honest to God, half the people walked out of the room. And I'm just... And they don't care what you have to say. And, and it made me feel like they really don't care. They don't. And, and, and that has been repeated. You, you're saying it. Like, that's the feeling. And and I feel like that's a big problem that's happening. The Kitty and Paul Dalzell still there? Uh, the last meetings I've been to, no. But that was pre-COVID. There hasn't been, there hasn't been, you know, everything's... Kitty's still running the council. Kitty Simmons. Yes. Well, yep. that's terrible. She's, 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 it's a disgusting council under her control. Let me tell you something. 
if you go back to the records, you will see it was this council in Kitty that told Noah, which which the, the most destructive decision ever made for Hawaiian fisheries is not to issue separate permits for long lining, one for tuna and one for swordfish. There is no decision that's ever been made as harmful to the fishery in Hawaii as that. And maybe the third thing is allowing gas tuna and even using U.S. money to put in gas tuna labs in foreign countries as, a, as the agency for international development when the only place they could sell it to was back into the United States. Those, one, two, three, that's it. If, we, if that didn't happen, maybe we wouldn't have a sword fishery here at all now. Maybe a hundred boats would have been bought out with Paul Achatoff's first lawsuit if they had separate fisheries. And we would have a hundred boat longline fleet. And it would be, it probably wouldn't have foreign crew. And uh, it would be a booming thing. It wouldn't dip down, but it, it's, that's the problem. It's the fine details of when the head of pyro here had that pile of first permits in front of him and started signing for NOAA and putting your name on and dishing them out. Joe, we're going to have to take one more quick break. This is awesome, but we need one more quick break here, bud. Okay. Okay. So we're back. What were other mistakes that have been made along the way? Well, when you went to limited entry and issued the 200 permits, number one, you didn't split them between two fisheries. And these were two very distinct fisheries. These weren't even close, right? Not in the same area, up cold water, 67 degrees, not deep, surface water set at night, hauled during the day, completely different. Is, is you didn't put a limit on the number of hooks that could be set. In other words, if you're going to go to limited entry, what you really need to limit is not the number of boats, but the amount of gear they can throw. In other words, uh, when, when we first started longlining here with the monoreel, boats were setting seven to 1,200 hooks. A day. A day. Yep. And now boats are setting 32 to 4,200. So if you had 100 boats setting, say, 1,000... And okay, when you're saying that, for the people at home, when you're saying they're throwing 4,200... It's not just that they're throwing 4,200 hooks in the same amount of gear. That is miles and miles more. and miles more. Yeah. Right. So yeah. how many miles do you think most of these boats throw a day now? Across the actual miles in the water, not just across the surface. How many miles do you think most of these boats are throwing a day on average? Well, the ones that throw 42 have two reels. Right. And, and I know if I throw, I don't have the biggest spool. If I have that throw spool full and I throw it, the whole spool... Fishing tuna deep, right? So yep. it's got the droops. From point to point, I'm about 26 and a half miles. 26 miles. 26, say, from point to point. And that's with how many hooks? That's with uh, 2,400 hooks. So 24, yeah, so that will kind of add up with like what I've heard. So I've heard that some of the bigger boats, basically, if they're throwing 36 miles across the top, there's somewhere around 57 miles of actual gear in the water per day. Yeah. That would sound about right, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Or 54 miles of water? Yeah. Yeah, about 54 miles of gear in the water yeah, a day? Yeah, at least 50. Yeah. That's and a lot of hooks. So, so That's a lot of hooks. And that's a lot of gear. There's always a statistical average that a fish swimming around will just bump into a hook. In other words, a, a turtle swimming around will just 
be flopping around and swim by a hook in the water and get hooked. There's right. just it's like getting hit by a bolt of lightning only more often. So I've caught big swordfish that way where they were they were hooked in the tail. They swam by my thing and that's, that's an egg. Half of the thresher sharks I've caught in my life were tail hooked. They weren't eating the bait. They were down there flopping around with that big tail and flopped a hook in and caught them. You know that. Yeah. So the the way the way to make the fishery better in terms of interacting with species in the ocean you don't want to interact with is to lower the number of gear in the water and you know make it viable economically to throw less gear but there's a lot of good reasons for throwing less gear we've got all this satellite data that that we we didn't have all the satellite data 30 years ago in 19 what 87 when they were issuing the permits what, what kind of oceanographic data were you getting from the satellite nothing you're getting nothing now they have everything uh, the, the the temperature of the water at 200 meters you know big guy like this temperature we've we put enough uh, uh, me and my son Dave Kurt we put enough uh, transducers in the bellies of big eye and put them loose and then recovered them. We know how deep they swim, where they feed, what temperature they like, and blah, blah, blah. So we got a lot of information that we didn't have when the permits and limited entry were issued. You see, the thing about issuing permits, the government, oh God, a buyback. But that's why you always go on the conservative side with permits. A hundred for tuna, a hundred for swordfish. A reasonable thing. Look, it's always easy to issue more permits. It's very difficult to take them back. Take them back. But I, I think it. I think it was Westpac and Kitty, and they're just bullheaded ways of doing this that that ram this fishery into. I bet Noah spent a hundred million dollars answering the Turtle Network's lawsuits against the turtle take here in Hawaii. And then you're going to the false killer whale. It, and now, of course, we've got the uh, the shark, the oceanic white tip, and we're converting to mono, getting the wire off. But yeah, they got they got to put a cap on the gear. I, I would cap the gear. I wouldn't want to be cruel, but somewhere between twenty five and twenty seven, I wouldn't let anybody throw more than that. Hooks per day. Yeah, I'd limit it. Now. I mean, that. would you not agree that that's not really going to hold back the really good fishermen? I feel like that is only going to hurt the less skillful fishermen. I feel like the good fishermen are still going to catch their share of fish with that amount of hooks, personally. Well, I know good fishermen here that have been here their whole life, that, you know, that fish with their fathers, the second generation, that a few of the Howley local owned homes, they're fed, set in 2700. They're yeah. doing really good. Yep. I'm kind of surprised this one guy, I'm not going to say names here, but he must know how to look at his oceanographic charts because that guy really knows how to throw his gear on the fish. So, you, yeah, you can upgrade that way. But the beauty is, the less hooks you have in the water to be economically successful, the less environmental action you're going to have with stuff you don't want to catch. And wouldn't you agree that if you have less gear in the water and a shorter soak time, the mortality rate on the stuff you're catching, 
that the undesirable stuff you're catching is going to go down. Is going to yeah, it's going to go down. More stuff that you want to release that you can't inadvertently catch, the survival rate's going to go up by having less gear. Well, in just water. say you're throwing 2,500 hooks. Just say you throw it. You got on a 24-hour cycle. If, if if you throw less hooks, but, but buy a higher quality bait, bait's an issue. Some bait's there's such issue. a thing as a bait rejection, right? So if you if if you have well rigged gear and you your crew checks it, you don't have le- breaking off big ones of leader. If 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 you perfect your fishing act, so to speak, with your bait, your hook, your gear, your location, your hauling speed. And the fact that so much, when, when things are crowding up on the auction, there's never enough fish, number one or better. There's never enough number one or better on the auction. There's never enough to top grade fish, yeah, ever. But there's always too much three or below. But the problem with throwing a lot, a lot of gear and hauling fast to get it in and out is you, you probably drop yourself down a grade. If, if, if you were averaging two, if you were averaging two... So for people at home that don't know, there's basically how many scales on the auction? Oh, it's like a two, a one, a one plus. Look, if, if, if you put a, a nice big eye on but, the auction... When you said a three, a three is a fry-grade fish, basically. Right. It's a fish that's not made for sashimi or pokey. It's a fish that's going a in three, a fry later. Look at it this way. A three is never a fish you would put on the Tokyo Fish Auction. Because they, they wouldn't give you a nickel for it. Well, in Japan, they call it can grade at best, right? Yeah, it's right? canning grade. Right. Which is okay. We need a world with canning grade. Right. That's all right. I mean, people need to eat, too. But, yeah. But I'm just saying, so that people at home understand what you're saying is that you're going to have more of that with longer soaking fish. Right. So, so it, it, what you've got to look at is the fishing boat's got to look at his bottom line. What are his net earnings going to be for throwing... 2,500 hooks 12 times versus his take-home pay, his net earnings, versus throwing 4,200 hooks 12 times. My feeling is if if you've got a good crew and a good captain and he's paying attention where he throws his gear, how he rigs his gear, how he inspects his bait, how, his, how the crew is hooking the bait, so you can't do a sloppy job putting it on the hook. Everything's right. Attention to detail. Yeah, attention, attention to detail. He's going to have a net income higher than the guy throwing forty-two because it's just impossible to move that much gear properly. It's just you can't do it. And the crews, it exhausts the crews. I mean, it's the crews are happy to move twenty-five, twenty-seven. I think the most I've ever thrown was 24. I mean, Ryan's maybe done 25. He's done 100 more than me. Just focus more on being efficient at it. Ryan has thrown 100 balls with 28 hooks a ball, which would be 2,800 hooks. But when we do that, I'll tell you. I'll tell you something. And I talked to the people that built this. If you're tuna fishing... This this thing is a mistake. See, I got I was fishing the cross. What, what, what Joe is pointing at right now is, is a, uh, a hook counter, a, a hook ca- a counter, a calculator. So it basically gives a sound. It beeps every time the crew should throw a hook, and then it double beeps when the crew should throw a floater. So that way you can kind of go through the motions. 
without having to count them. The computer does it. You hear the beep. You throw a hook. You hear beep beep, and you throw a float. Okay, I'll tell you what we need to do. And I've asked the guy that made this, Kevin, to do it, and he hasn't done it yet. What we need is we need three kinds of beeps. Because you don't want to throw a ball on the beep beep because you're fishing tuna deep on either side of the ball. Now, it's different in swordfish because you're fishing in the surface, but I'm talking deep set tuna first. Your first, your last two hicks, hooks going to the ball, or at least your last one, but I like the last two. Yep. And the next two going away, you let it beep, don't put on a bait. Let it be blank. Yeah, so you're looking at 30, but you're actually only setting 26 baits. Right. Because why are you putting baits expensive? And why are you wearing the crew out, putting in a shallow bait that's probably going to catch a barracuda? It's you know, you're more likely to have bycatch and tangles. Well, the other issue is all my, all my mahi-mahi and striped marlin normally come up on the shallow baits. Right. So if we, uh, for sure... Oh, without a doubt. So <laughs> if we had, if we had a hook counter that would give me a beat pattern where coming up to a ball, okay. beat, beat, beeps the hook, then it goes beat, beat, no hook, beat, beat, no hook. Then for the ball, beat, 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 there's the ball. Or a long beep, something different. Something different. Something different so the crew that has the sound where throw a hook, don't throw a hook. That would actually help bycatch a lot. Yeah, this would be the key. A modified hook counter, I think, would be the key for your striped marlin in your mind. mind. That's very smart, Joe. That's why I went through 4,600 hooks and had 57 big hockey on the cross seamount. And you know why? I didn't troll around dangling with the rats. You focused on bigger fish. Well, I discovered right away, I let my gear soak a little longer instead of racing back to catch rats. And I waited till like 3.34 in the afternoon on gear. I didn't set, set at 3.34 in the morning. So I gave 10 or 11 hours, a uh, 10 or 11 hours soak. And, and I examined the belly content. I saw what the fish were eating. Me and Bonner on the boat, you know we're fishermen, right? And said, okay, throw it deep. Don't throw shallow hooks, even though we still got some fish. Don't wait because we're alone on the boat, right? We don't have a lot of crew. We've got to focus on what makes sense. But I asked Kevin a couple of years ago to redesign the hook beeper, and I think what you should do... Well, I think that's a big part of the future. You're talking about fishing smarter, and I think that's super we, we've important. We've got to fish smarter, because because we've got to reduce the environmental impact in the fishery. And in fact, even the white-tipped sharks normally come up on the shallow hooks. And I, and I, to, I told POP that they should have LP, which also makes a hook counter. And this goes back two or three years... You can talk to Kevin about it. And I said, Kevin. It's very smart. You've got to redesign the hook counter if you want to eliminate bycatch. And I've, I've told everybody that. I just get tired. And now I, I don't think I've ever told you Well, that. I mean, it's really smart. I mean, it makes sense, especially as we, we're getting, we're dealing with more and more bycatch issues and wanting to be smarter and wanting to be able. I mean, because one of the things I keep thinking about with the striped marlin is that I don't want to see striped marlin get dumped. I have a big emotional attachment to them. So in order for us to be able to fish year-round with our longline fleet, that means we have to be able to, A, fish within a sustainable number, and I think that means we have to fish less gear or we need to eliminate... Uh, some hooks. Some hooks that are, are, particularly the ones that are catching the most. So eliminating hooks 
near the surface, I think it's probably a really smart idea to focus more on big eye. Exactly. I think that's a really good idea. I, yeah. you know, I haven't actually, I've seen it kind of proposed, but not in the really well refined way that you just said. So that's a great idea. And that's well, what you we'll can do, it. what you can do is, is you can, you can, if you can set it to beat and leave the hook off on either side of the ball. David Itano and Kurt, we, years ago on long trips, we talked about this when I was tagging on the equator and stuff. He and I talked about, well, are you listening? Do you just go with the hook counter or do you leave but, a hook off? Well, here's one thing, though, all right? Do you and, leave a hook off? I said, no, I when I'm setting, I leave a hook off. But you know the problem, Joe? Me and you have a conscience about fishing. One of the problems is, is that you're going to get this in, on, on other boats. They don't really care. Like, let's be honest. A no, lot, they don't A care. lot of these guys don't care. Yeah, and you can patient. see it in our fishery. And maybe this is something you can talk about. I get the question a lot on my Instagram following from fish buyers on the mainland. And one question that I have keep getting repeated, and it kind of hurts my feelings, but I also understand, a lot of people ask me, they say, why has the quality coming out of Hawaii gone down so much? Because the trips are too long. And that's, and I say, well, I, I'd like to think that it hasn't, but... It has. But the quality has gone down. I think that's generally accepted. I've heard that enough times from, from fish buyers on the mainland that it's actually getting, Hawaii's kind of getting a bad rap because of how much old fish comes in. Well, that's what I'm telling you. They're throwing too much gear. They're throwing too many times. They're running their expenses too high. They're not fishing smart. And and the, the boat owners normally will have a true Asian captain, especially if they're Vietnamese. And uh, that's that's a mentality we got to get out of. So... The, so the, their mind is just weight. They're not thinking like shorter trip. They just figure they have to have a certain amount of weight, and so they're not fishing until they have X amount of weight. Is that what you're saying? Well, the deal is a number one fish that bites your line, if it's 20 days old, is a two minus or a three plus. Best case scenario. Yeah, if it's 10 days old, it's a two plus or a one minus. Okay, so it's worth three times as much money. Fresh. Fresh. It's worth three times as much. It can be exported anywhere in the world. How how do we convince this fleet with a mentality of weight to focus more on quality? Or do we have to force them by trip limits to... Do we have to say you can only... Do we have to do trip limits? How do we get the general thought process to change to focus on quality? Well, long lining traditionally with the tarred line was a three-day fishery. So the fish were excellent. When you went to the mono lines and the fence came into being, so the guys had to go further out. Yeah. So, so now you got travel time. time. It it moved up to like a seven day fishery. Okay. Okay. And then from there, it wasn't a quality issue, but from there, with the import of the Gulf Fleet. They traditionally the sword fishery was was a longer fishery because a lot of a lot of boats made seawater ice and actually were holding their swordfish at 24, 25 degrees. Not really hard frozen, but but a saltwater fish freezes at what twenty seven and a half or something. Something like that. Yeah. So they were they were right on the border of almost frozen. But you can't do you can't take an ahi to twenty seven and a half. It's too cold. Yeah. Right. Damages. So so. The issue bringing in sword fishermen is they think a 25, 24 day trip was nothing. But so when they 
when they weren't sword fishing with the with the lawsuits and the tuna closure, then they're back into it. At the time, here's what they did. I can remember Grandpa Goda saying we're going to limit a long line trip to 14, two weeks in a day, 15 days. So at one point, the auction wouldn't take a fish that was over 14 days old. Yeah, you unload it on your 15th day. 15th day. It was too old. Right. So what would happen if their fish were too old? They went to the cannery. They made it so, it. so Frank Goro would make the fish go to the cannery. They got more money at the cannery than they would get on the auction form if they were threes. Nobody here wanted a three. Well, what are you going to can it, right? So you would say, would you say, well, just based on the days alone, obviously they were, there used to be, why do you think that's changed? Do you think that's, why do you think they're less stringent on fish quality today than the past? Well, what they did is to try to improve it, what they did is to try to improve it is they would jump, they went to gill and gut on the boat. So you could, when you brought the fish up and spiked it, and then we brought in that organic preservative. You put it in your sprayer and you spray it down. You made sure you had no clean ice, ozone your ice. I got an ozone maker on my ice machine. Yep. So you do everything you can to reduce the bacterial count, right? right? Which is not a bad idea. You didn't have to do it on a three to seven day trip, but if you're gonna go to 14, you had to do it. But then just the struggle to make money and make you know to make ends meet and especially because the because of the imports and because of the increasing crew guys are staying out longer it just slowly it's what, what it did it was a combination of many factors so it, was, it didn't happen overnight no when the sword fishery was closed down due to the turtle thing and everybody got forced into the falling prices on the tuna the way somebody would think is well I'll just catch more and then I can make ends meet instead of saying look I'm going to whatever I do I'm going to try to stick on the kind of grade of fish I can put on JL and send to the fish auction and and Grandpa Frank oh god 10-12 years ago maybe 15 years ago had a double auction he had Japanese buyers he selected out the very best fish for the day okay he started the auction an hour early, exclusive, exclusively for Japanese buyers that were exporting to Tokyo. And then he let the local buyers in for the second auction. We had a double auction. So don't tell me he wasn't tuned in to quality, right? Oh, he definitely was. He, right. If he was here, he would never allow this rubbish on the auction. It, it doesn't make sense. In the first place, you're going to get 70 cents for a fish that you could have got six dollars you're going to catch it the next trip you're going to catch that fish and get six dollars for it if you leave him be if you just don't yeah if you right. don't if you don't rot him on a long trip that fish is going to be there for somebody else to catch or you how do we change the mentality you've been in this fishery for so many years how do we change the mentality to agree with something where like I mean, because I totally agree with what you're saying. Shorter trips. I mean, I already believe that. Quality over quantity. Yeah. How do we change that mentality? Or can we not? No, I think we can. I mean, I do long line trips. I do long line trips, and I never set more than nine days. No matter what. No matter good bite or bad bite or whatever. I give it my nine-day shot. Nine days. 
It's nine sets. Nine sets. You either get nine them or you sets don't. of twenty four hundred looks. I either get them or I don't. It's going to be a money losing trip. I just come in and take my head. and then you know reassess everything and go try and do better. And, and you know I've caught what fifteen million dollars worth of tuna. You know, it's not like I haven't made money doing it. Right. But but the issue with me is I'm actually a fishing captain. I'm not a boat owner who has a paper captain on the boat and couldn't catch a fish that their life depended on and, and has a foreign uh, thing. I'll tell you another thing that's bad, that I don't like about foreign crew. We took local jobs away from people that live in Hawaii and we're, we're paying $200 million a year to insure and fly in and out and take back and pick up and export money to the Philippines and Indonesia. Out of our fish earnings, we're taking, if, if we had American local fishermen hauling and setting these gears, okay, and spending that money here, it would be huge. Instead of exporting, and I, of course the Philippines now with no flights in and out, but foreign offshore Filipino workers are sending 30 billion US dollars home last year. Well, thank God everybody would be starving to death in the Philippines without 30 billion US dollars with this COVID. So maybe, you know, maybe it'll all balance out. But I, I actually think probably the best idea I've had to reduce bycatch and to move in the direction of more local fishermen yes. is to put a limit on the number of hooks. Limit on the number of hooks. And to put with a good hook counter when you're fishing tuna, the two hooks on either side of the ball don't even set them. That's a huge difference. That's super smart. I mean, if you look, and you've probably seen this, like, uh, you know, because I'm always studying all this stuff. Well, you haul the gear yourself. You know where the tuna are coming up. How many marker tuna have you caught on the first or seven hook to the ball? Well, some, but not... Not very rare. Pretty rare. They're usually cheaper. You know, honestly... No, you know where it's really hot? Well, I maybe a four number, more yellow. Number, yeah, marker yellow is mostly up on the top. Yeah, yeah. three buoy three to six. Yeah, I was just going to say, number seven is kind of where you get, like, you know... Big the, aisle start at seven. Yeah, yellow yeah seven's, kind of, seven's kind of the magic number where you start to see those bigger, those bigger, big yeah, eyes, see? for sure. So, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in denial about that. I, what I was going to say is, if you look at uh, some of the other countries' gear, and you look at, like, Japan and places that have a higher catch per ratio, that a lot of times the way they fish their gear... Is none of it shallow? It's all at. They have all their dropper lines and everything are set at the same depth. At the same depth that they're targeting, very exact, and they have a much higher catch rate. Sixty-four degrees. Yeah, they're targeting. They're targeting a water temp. Yeah. And yeah. So, that's one reason my son Ryan was a good longline fisherman because he knew to target. He, he wanted his bait at sixty-four, and he, of course, working with Bana and communicating, they they uh, able to adjust their gear accordingly. Right. Right. The tension in the gear. You want to come off that buoy. You know what you could do? Even the even the timer. If you got to hook six and it automatically switched to six seconds. From Just seven. so it stalled out. No, so you set your hooks a little tighter in the zone. Right. See what I'm saying? I do. We we need you, 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 we need an upgrade. We need a program. You need a hook better time. focus of your gear. Get your hooks away from where you're going to get most of your bycatch. And, and get your hooks away from the turtles and, and the. And focus more on increasing your CPU, 
by being yeah I, I mean let's be honest most of even though the monofilament gear we're using is state of the art most of the technology you're using is still from the 80s so there's definitely right there's definitely room for for upgrades without a doubt I mean look at what a look at what a meter or a GPS was when I start when I on my first trip to the cross sea mount and what I got here right technology has come a long that hasn't way. changed and I I have I the think hook it, counter. He's pointing at the hook counter hasn't changed. I've I I told him three years ago we need we need to put in a chip to upgrade programming on the hook counter. Well, I think that's really smart. In fact, that's a business you and I could start. We, <laughs> we need to have a hook counter manufactured. Well, I'm going to stick with the fishing business myself, but that seems like a great after after career business for you, Joe. <laughs> I don't want any more business. Yeah, I, I'm I'm going to be a. I'm gonna fish, be a fisherman till the day I die. On some level, Joe. Well, me that, too. I'm not gonna stop fishing, <laughs> even if it's in a trout pond in Thailand. Right? Roger that. So, Joe, you, we've talked a lot about the fishery. We've talked about kind of the, you know, uh, some of the uh, the down effects. Uh, it's encouraging what you're saying about what you think we can do moving forward. I'd like to kind of wrap this up on a uh, on a high note, though. Oh. And, and instead of just talking about kind of where we are today and uh, the state of the fishery and what, what, let me ask you a couple things that uh, that are kind of more, that I ask people that are kind of more more off the off the, not so much off the cuff I have to put you in this thing but most beautiful thing you've ever seen out at sea the most beautiful thing I've ever seen out at sea is uh my Russian girlfriend sitting in that seat, naked. <laughs> well, all right. Fair enough. <laughs> if you want the truth, all right, well, I ain't lying to you. All right, well, I, I mean, I was, yeah, I mean, I think I was looking. <laughs> For something in the water? Well, you know, I, <laughs> hey, if, if that's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen out at sea, that's the most well, beautiful because, thing you've ever seen out at sea. Because you can see a lot of them on land, but there's so many of them, it's not... But when you go to sea, you're still seeing one. Yeah, well, that's that's knock on wood. Fair enough. Okay. You well. know, you know, I, I got to tell you something about fishing this year in the halls. Now that Wayne, and I really like Wayne, something he's done putting out... Uh, the average weight of the big eye loads, the average yep. poundage. So far this year, January, February, March is almost over. I haven't seen a single big eye load landed by this longline fleet where the average weight of the big eye was over 100 pounds. So and this is shocking to me that they're putting up, you know what? So 30 years ago, it was like 170 or 180 now it's so we're definitely we're definitely we're definitely seeing less less big fish less big fish and the proof is right there right in the there averages the, yeah yeah it's uh well let me ask you something i was trying to go i was trying to i was trying i was trying to take this to a happier spot but uh, <laughs> but since we're right back there then uh i noticed that our government puts a lot of uh, a lot of emphasis, and that the foreign boats are doing it wrong. And uh, do you think that we should be pointing fingers at other countries for the way they're fishing if we're not doing it perfectly here ourselves? Yes, simply. Well, I it it, it was December the first time I ever fished fish next to two Chinese longliners, and the first time in my life I'd ever seen them. 
just outside the 200. Actually, one one was inside a couple miles hauling gear. This is recently. In December of last year. In December of last year, you saw yeah. Chinese boats in our waters. Yeah. Oh my God. All right. And and I I think these guys don't understand when they created the Northwest Hawaiian Island Monument. I think they kind of did it wrong because what it looks like to me what they created is a breeding pond 1,100 miles long and 400 miles wide now because they expanded the boundary to the monument out to the EEZ. Right. For those of you that don't know at home, that's 200 miles the U.S. Yeah. claims as the economic exclusive zone. Right. But U.S. fishermen used to be able to fish to the border of the monument, which was like 50 miles. So it was a 100-mile corridor instead of a 400-mile corridor. So by pushing us out, they made a huge breeding pond, the breeding pond, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean for a 17,000-boat Chinese fleet, Taiwanese fleet, South Korean fleet, Indonesian fleet. I, I am shocked at the flagging of the boats I have seen up north, because I'm not always on the cross sea now. Right. That are sh popping up, showing fishing outside the 200 EEZ from countries all over the world are up there because they know they've got 1,100 mile by 400 mile spawning ground that even we can't fish. So if they snuggle up to the border, they're snuggling up to their breeding pond. So we actually. And I'm made sure. a trap. I've got to We guess. built a trap to bring them in. That Northwest Hawaiian Island is a trap to bring in fishing vessels from all over the world. They don't care about the turtles. They don't care about the whales. They don't care about the seabirds. I, I mean, I, I have foreign crew on some of these boats that are fishing around here. Literally, if they catch a whale, they harvest it. Yes. There are crew members in this fleet. And you will that see have harvested whales. When you will see one once in a while, it's called a lucky fish. And for those of you at home that don't know what a lucky fish is, a lucky fish is a whale tooth from a false killer whale or a pilot whale that a crew member they normally don't show them to you unless you are really trusted with them. I've seen but, them, but I've they seen. they have a lucky fish, and a lucky fish is a whale tooth that they got off a long liner that they worked on, and they keep it uh, as like a good luck charm. And they are in this fleet; they exist. I had a crew member who would bring one out and rub it whenever he felt like we needed luck. So yeah. they, they definitely exist. And that was on another boat that was uh, a foreign boat. It was on a Taiwanese boat. They, they harvested any whales they were able to. So don't think that that's not uh, Any boat happening. in the Chinese, the Chai Kong fleet, will harvest every single turtle dead or alive and every single whale dead or alive they pick up. Every single thing is harvested. Not to mention that. They're not releasing anything that's alive. Right, and not yeah, they're trying not to. Right, any nope. any bright any breed of whale, they're gonna they're, they're gonna, gonna harvest. They're it. gonna take it. And to mention shark fins, I mean they are finning to this day, everything, everything, everything. So it, it's kind of one of these double things that we run into. Is that on one hand we are highly regulated as you know, and as far as bycatch, I feel like we should be, but then we literally will import that same fish into our country, that is that is sinking, you know, finless sharks, killing whales. And so are the U.S. fishermen have all these regulations, but then that same product is ending up in our marketplace. And that is one of the flaws 
that we are running into is that we're literally competing against what would be our own fish that's caught improperly. Exactly. And that's that's the objection I have about uh, Obama putting up the 200-mile zone around the northwest Hawaiian Islands. Because it, it all it did was excite, all he did was excite the commercial fishing fleets all over the world that knew the American boats now were kicked out of the EEZ and they could go up there and harvest. If we were harvesting inside the 200... They wouldn't be sliding in there. They wouldn't be sliding in there. But there's really nobody watching them. That's the problem. That is a big problem. We don't have anyone to enforce that kind of stuff. No. No. That is a problem. That's a big problem with any of the fishery regulation stuff that we talk about when we start talking internationally. We can have all the rules that you want, but if there's nobody to actually enforce them, uh, it doesn't do any good. And I think that's one of the arguments that they run into here all the time. Um, over here, when they, they when we start talking about regulations on our own fleet, is that you know people say, well, the other guys are doing it wrong. And that, in fact, is also a big problem. And I think... I think that's a problem going forward that uh, the only way as a U.S. person I, I, or a U.S. citizen, in my opinion, can help is by not buying foreign-caught fish. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's a shame. It's, 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 market, it's in the marketplace. Americans should buy American-caught fish. Or, look, there's good farm-raised fish. There's tiger prawns, farm-raised in Thailand. There's uh, gee, they Thailand's a big aquaculture place. They grow a red snapper down there in farms. I've seen. I, I'm not. I'm not. In, I'm not against importing a fish farmed properly and environmentally. Well, I think that's the thing. It's all about. But how, Joe? You're a smart man. How does the general public decipher the difference between a fish that's caught ethnically? And cleanly yeah. versus one that's not. Well, when it comes to aquaculture, yeah, you can. But when it actually comes to uh, fishing fleets on the high seas, uh, you ju you just have to. Well, I think the law is on the books, but they keep giving the foreign countries exemptions. They we we actually technically to the law are not allowed to import fish into America not caught by U.S. environmental input regulations. It's actually against the law. But somehow there's a loophole on that? No, they, the foreign nations keep asking Congress for an exemption because they don't have the wherewithal to do the enforcement. Gotcha. That's the issue there. And the Congress, money gets paid to congressmen that have to get elected and they just keep giving one exemption after another. That, it's the exemption to the law. How about this, Joe? Here's a, since we're on doom and gloom and you're being open and honest, compared to what you saw fishing in your early days to the rate that we are going, you think we can actually outfish the seas? You think if we keep going down the track where we're not really sustainable, but we say we're sustainable, do you think, and if the foreign fleet doesn't change, do you think we can outfish the tuna? You think we can, you think we can go too far? Yeah, I do. You, you can't have, you can't have the Chicom saying they got 4,000 boats, but they got 17 or 18,000. And I don't, you know, that's a pretty well established fact now. 
I don't know what the Indonesians got, but I showed you that picture of their fleet tied up at Jakarta. Yeah, it's unbelievable. That's a lot of log landing boats. That's 10,000 times the effort this fleet is throwing, and this, this fleet may be throwing too much as it is. Right. You can't have... I mean, there may be... There may be a krill fishery in Antarctica. You could trawl net for krill, or I mean, there's probably other. Th there's probably some biomass in the ocean you could fish for that isn't overfished right now. There probably is, but I don't know. I think we're right on the edge with tuna. I I, I don't think we'd ever drive them extinct or anything. They just get rarer and rarer. But but the issue is, I fished here five years and never caught a yellowfin or a big eye in the '70s. That was under 100 pounds and now you look at the average fish for the begin from this beginning to year long lining and landed on the auction no no single boat is and landed on the auction has landed a load of yellowfin or tuna over 100 pounds i the last time i unloaded a load of tuna that and and i'll tell you the economics of it i unloaded a load of yellowfin in three sets and then I went back and got another one in two sets. So five sets, yellowfin markers, close to Oahu, but outside the fence, uh, in a total of five sets of like 2,200 hooks. And landing those fresh fish, my, my net, my gross paycheck before expenses was in less than two weeks was $96,000. And that was two summers ago in July. Great fishing. That was, and you know what? If, if, if we, yeah, I mean, they, they were $7 a pound fish, right? Gorgeous, close, big, beautiful cut out fish. beautiful. If, if, if we, if we managed in that direction, but I'm not, I'm not sure you could get these people to manage in that direction. When we, when we first Ikashibi'd off of Kona, my, my first trip I ever went out in Kona was maybe 1973 or four. And it was a summertime Ikashibi trip. They were like 180s, outside Hilo 180s to 250s. <laughs> big ones. Big ones. We didn't even see small. Big, big ones. Here's a good question for you, since Strike Marlin are such a hot topic right now. Realistically, not some bullshit number. Modern day, how many of the striped marlin actually come up dead, comparably? Most of them. Most of them. I agree. Most of them. Yeah. I would say rare to get a striped marlin coming up alive. Alive at all. Rare. That's what I would say too. And for some reason, uh, and, I've, and I've done a little bit of research on this, I said, well, how can it possibly be that they're saying that close to 50% are even alive? Because I've never even seen close to 50 cent alive. And I talked to Maybe an, 5%. I, maybe. Maybe. I talked to an... Who an, gave you that number of 50%? Uh, well, the number they're using is 48% alive. Oh, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I think... Here in Hawaii? Correct, yeah. That's crazy. I know, yeah, I know. But that's the number they're using for their best science. But um, I talked to an observer because this number has been blowing my mind. And uh, they told me that live, like, because uh, they told me that live only, they have like different stages of what alive is. It could be as little as just like the fish has some color and the tail's moving a little bit, and that's considered alive. Because, well, that's dead. Because in my experience, I've seen almost no striped marlin come up alive. Like, it's like, 
They're miscounted. It's very, very, it's very, very low. That's if it's not rigid, they, they must saying a fish has to be colorless and rigid to come up with that 48%, 50% come in. I would say. I mean, what's even a say, fish you could cut off and would swim away? Yeah, five percent. Five percent. They almost all come up dead. They almost all come up dead. I I, I agree. So I, I, I think even even if you just didn't was forty eight or 50, even if you said fifty, that number is ludicrous. Yeah, I, it's bad that, data. That's bad science. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. The, the the observers are being instructed incorrectly on how to count a fish. And you know what's funny when it comes to a whale, if you cut it off and it's no chance it's going to die, and observer will count it as a tate, a dead fish. Well, I mean, I so don't... they kind of overcount on the whales and undercount on the strike. But even that's not totally true because I think if you've been here long enough, we have heard plenty of observer stories that observers sometimes aren't exactly observing what they're witnessing. It's what's, you know, there's a. They're humans, so yeah. I think we all know stories where certain things aren't written down because of whatever agenda they may have. So, well, yeah, that's I, true. I think part of that has been why there's such a big pushback against 100% monitoring on uh, on the boats. If if there wasn't a problem, why wouldn't there be cameras on every one of these boats when you're hauling back? Well, now that they want to go to that, right? Well, I I think they should. Wouldn't bother me. No. You know, you know what I find strange? The way I fish, the way I pick out my spot, the way I set my gear, if there's whales around, I wouldn't even set it if there's any turtles around. I, I, I haven't had a single documented whale take long line from an observer over my entire history. I haven't had a single turtle take. I've had a, maybe 20 bird takes. Total. Total. And you think that's because you're fishing less gear in the time of night or time of day you set them? I just think it's because I'm paying attention and trying to fish, not throw gear. I, I think it's because when me and Bon are on the boat and he's running the baiting, we we literally count. We do we do the job the hook counter doesn't. Right. You know? Yep. But, but I just thought when we talked about all the baits at the same depth, once you get down to seven, once you get down to seven, I'd like to see the hook counter for the next three baits go to six, for the next three baits go to five, then yeah, come so back up to six. You seven. can really concentrate your he gear. Puts, and and it's out of the mahi mahi zone. Striped marlin zone. Striped marlin zone. It's right there on the fish. And if you got more fish, you don't have to pull it fast. You don't need your trip as long. You're gonna. You're going to put two plus and one minuses or ones on the auction if you're lucky. You're not going to have two minus and three plus shit that you get nothing for. Yeah, we got to smart, smarten up the fishery, but it's hard to smarten these fishermen up, man. Okay, Joe, let's wrap this up. This has been awesome. Is there anything that you think needs to be known about the Hawaiian fishery that has just been suppressed for years or... Something that just some takeaway that really think should be passed along that the next generation should know or people should know. Well, I don't know. I think our congressional delegation here, the senators and our two congressmen and two senators, uh, I don't think they're ever 
the ones we had, and I think it's been a shame that we lost Senator Inouye. I just don't think they're they're really tuned in enough. Where like Senator Inouye, years, decades ago, would provide money to help the young fishermen move up and stuff. I don't think they're connected well enough to the fishery to realize if we if we fish smarter, we wouldn't need foreign crew. We could provide local jobs, we got the highest unemployment rate in the nation. And and the government here always yak, 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 oh, we can't just depend on tourism. Uh, I would I would improve the fishery. I would improve the fishery by the suggestions I've made. And uh, and people coming in, you know, like the computer industry brings in uh, fishermen, I mean, not computer programmers from India and on the H H-1B-1 visas, we could bring in select and well-trained fishermen and uh, 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 in the same way on H-1B-1s and uh, not put them through this detained on board stuff. And yeah, so explain that to people. Like, a lot of people don't realize when we say we have foreign crew on the boat, they're not even allowed to leave the crew. Uh, they're not even allowed to actually leave the vessel. We actually, the system that's set up is we pick them up on the ocean and we bring them into the harbor and they're denied admission to the United States on an I-95. So they're detained on board. They are not allowed to enter the United States. So they, they kind of have an abnormal existence here on the boats. Now, when they decide... So they're, they're allowed to work for people in the United States, but they're not actually allowed the rights of the people in the United States. They're not even, their existence isn't even recognized as being in the United States. How was that loophole ever discovered? Well, I'm not sure whether it's a fully legal loophole or not. I'm not sure that, that the local Customs and Border Patrol can just deny entry, but then, but then allow the person to be on the boat, even though the boat is sitting in Honolulu Harbor. What, now, would, what would happen, okay, so these are all Indonesian and Filipino guys that come here, they get denied access, and then they're allowed to work on the boat, right? What would happen if it was someone, say, from, like, Mexico or Europe or a different one of these non-Asian countries? Would it be the same thing? Yeah. So you could get a European here that could come work on the boat. But yeah, they like, I, I knew this Finlander, and he wasn't a U.S. citizen, and he worked on boats here as a detained on board. This is 30 years ago when he first came here in Long Lane. But, but uh, the problem we have now is, is that we have such crazy immigration and border policies, and we've had an ongoing battle since Ronald Reagan was president that I know of, that uh, never clearly defined. It's Congress's fault for never passing a set of rules and sticking to them. That that the Customs and Border Patrol, look, how, how they allow Filipinos to come into Alaska is different set of regulations than how they allow them to come into Hawaii or how they love, let them come into the Florida. Right, so like over there they're allowed to fly them in, but here we actually have to bring them in by boat. Boat, boat, why? I don't know why, I've always yeah, wanted see, that too. Yeah, well that's it. We See, we don't have a consistent set of rules. So a local administration official 
comes up with what they feel they can work with in a given area. And you'd think the United States is one country and the rules would be uniform everywhere, but but they aren't. I, I, you know, you know the thing about foreign workers. You know, I go back to the Mayo Clinic, and I'm at the Taylor Hotel there. Right. Do you know how many foreign Filipino girls are working in that hotel? I don't. Half of everybody that works there is from the Philippines. Okay. And these are young girls coming in as students on a student visa. Yep. To learn hotel management. Okay. Well, how to clean rooms and deal with customers, right? Right. And I've talked to a lot of them. Well, why couldn't we bring in crew from the Philippines as students, guys 20, you know, that right. graduated smart, speak English, and have them learn all the details of the boat, the engine, the mechanic, the fishing, do like a two-year stint, and when they leave here, get a, get a, and then go home, you know, for a year, whatever, come back, do two years, spend four years here, get a certificate of, uh, of training on a fishing vessel that included certain elements of the engineering and everything else. I mean, we, what I'm saying is we could, we could be more humane to our DOBs. Instead of making them DOBs, we could make them people. DOB stands for detained on board. Detained on board. That's what they're actually classified as. Is and they're not allowed to learn anything. They're prohibited from learning. They are only allowed to get off the garbage, to, to, to unload the fish, to set the gear. They have this set of regulations, a very limited one that these detained on boards are actually allowed to do. Right, and part of that becomes back to unions that were upset that the guys were here, so right. it, it, it's kind of follow the money on that, yeah, I, exactly. I think. So, yeah, it, it's a really hard one. Like, you know, I, I love my guys, and, and part of the thing is like... They're great guys. They're great guys, and I've always considered myself a world citizen, you know? like Exactly. So I, 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 you know, I've, I've worked in Costa Rica, I've worked in Panama, I've worked in Mexico, I've worked in Australia, I've worked, you know, I've worked in these other countries, so it's hard for me to judge other guys coming to do the best, you know, to better themselves, because I fished all over the place, uh, not necessarily for more money, but to, you know, to fulfill my, my own personal desires of wanting to fish in these things, my own goals, and they're, and in this case, these guys come here because they make way more money than what they ever, ever could make at home, but I would like to say, like when you say the humane thing, I would like to see some kind of minimum payment or something along those lines that makes the level playing field the same for locals. And what I mean by that, right now, I, I, I still believe that some of the, the baseline on some of these boats is so cheap that you don't have locals entering this industry because there's not enough money for the cost of living in Hawaii. So why are they yeah. going to get on a job? Why are they going to get on a boat where they can't even afford to have a, uh, a marginal living and I think until we get around uh, until we find a way that the pay goes up how are we going to get our next generation of younger guys interested because it goes foreign crew on the deck and then an American captain well there's a lot to learn from the deck to being the captain yeah, a lot. And so how do we educate those that next generation is always one thing I'm concerned about well that's what I said we should bring them in as uh the way we bring in other foreign workers as 
college students, so to speak. There's there's nothing wrong with trade. Uh, nothing wrong with going to college, but there's nothing wrong with learning a trade. Definitely not. So, the world needs tradesmen. In fact, the world is short of tradesmen. And uh, and what I've noticed with some of the younger Indonesians that I've had, I had this kid, young boy. I couldn't keep him out of the engine room. Anytime I went down there, he was down there. Right, they want to learn. They want to learn. And for the Indonesian translators to say, oh, they're going to deport this kid if you let him go in the engine room with you. He's banned from the engine room. Uh, you know, that's, that's extreme, right? That's extreme. How would you like to be 22 years old, hungry to learn everything, and be told you weren't allowed to learn anything? Yeah. I mean, can you be more inhumane than that? You 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 you're gonna you're gonna shut this guy's brain off, right? At 22. Yeah, I know. I've seen it. They come around, and for those of you who don't know this at home, they they come around and they check to make sure that there's no like grease or oil on their hands, with the idea being that they they think that that's keeping them from doing undesirable work. But a lot of these guys want to learn how to turn an engine. It's a skill set, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. Like it's a, it's a, like a lot of these guys. They you know they they want to learn more. They don't want to just be, uh, you know, they want more. That's why they're here. If they didn't want more, they wouldn't have taken... Precisely. Such they're a aggressive to come here. Right. And, and the foreign crew I've had, Filipino and Indonesian, over the last 10 years when I've had them, and certainly my Solomon guys, my Solomon guys wa want to inspect and look at every tool in the boat, want to know... I mean, they... they they're. Hungry to learn everything. I agree. And this, this is the American dream for them, which is crazy yeah. because they're not even accepted. They're not even here. They're not even legally here on paper, but they're actually living the American dream, which is so crazy. So they can have grease on their hand from helping you tighten a belt on a seawater pump, you know, black dust off the pump. Walk over to the toilets. Have a CBP guy see they've got black on the arm in their upper hand. Oh, where did you get that from? Oh, I was helping the captain change the belt. We're to get in the van. We're deporting them. They'd be sent home. They're sending them home. I know. See, this is this. Talk about cruel and unusual punishment, right? This is this is extreme. It really is. And 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 these guys are great guys. That's the thing. Like I can't emphasize enough. Like if you spent any time with with. And, and actually met these guys. For the most part, these guys Great are hard-working fishermen that just want to do the best for their family, like the rest of us. Right. You know, they're no different than us. And yeah, that's a shame. So, yeah, I can see areas abuse where where guys have bought a boat that was a total wreck, brought in a foreign crew, have them cut it all apart, welded, repainted. I mean, build a boat from scratch, basically. Right. I can go. Yeah. I understand that too because we've all seen that at the dock. Yeah, a longliner. They'll, they'll bring it in and they'll literally use those guys as like laborers for the worst kind of work. For, six months for six just months. Everything. Right. Yeah. That's that's different than a boat in continuing operation. That's different than a boat operating continuously in and out of the harbor fishing. And you got to remember this: with only one American and old. Crew, the day is going to come, and we've seen it here, where we've had captains die on the boat on a fishing trip, packed in the ice with the tuna, yeah. and the foreign crew's got to bring the boat home. And if they don't know how to switch a fuel tank or check the oil in a transmission or see when a cooler's gone bad or this or that, right. if they if they haven't been trained and all the things that a 
senior captain like me, sharing ideas with him, giving him English lessons so I can speak to him, taking him down there and giving him hands-on, touch this, move this. So Joe, we've talked about, you know, that some of the things that face the fleet today, but it's just not how I want to end it because you've had a long career. And uh, do you have a favorite fishing memory? Best rush ever? How about the biggest fish you've ever seen? Well, I've seen huge marlin. I've had them on the line. I've seen all. I don't think I really have a favorite. I don't really think I have a favorite memory. I have because I have thousands of memories. I have. I, I'll tell you one thing. When I when I left San Diego and came over to the Big Island, and I wasn't even 30 yet, I was in my late 20s, and I was surfing and fishing waves and going fishing and with that great group of guys growing up on the Big Island fishing and the camaraderie and the, it was, it was happiness. It was, I was really happy in my life. I've been happy as a fisherman. Yeah, you know, I'm disappointed in the council and yeah, they, they really destroyed us by not separating swordfish and tuna permits and you've seen all the mistakes the government guys had made and I got I you know five or ten years ago I used to just hate them all but now I realize that when when you have a fishery managed by managed by people in Washington DC and you're trying to set things right in Hawaii I I just think you need more local control. You you can't have the last decision made by a, by a bureaucrat sitting at a desk that has got a stacks of papers that he's looking through and you, you can't manage like that. It just but but all in all it's been a wonderful experience here fishing. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't have God, I can think of so many insane dangler rushes and big fish and 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 having a a big swordfish or something pop or like we had a 800 pound marlin break leader and floating and dead and jumping in the water with the line and going over and putting a rope, tying a rope on his tail and getting back to the boat, pulling him over because you want, you know what I mean? We, I've never been afraid to jump, neither Joe, none my bond on my crew. If, if it's possible not to let a big one get away that's busted off, you know, with their bellies, their tongues out or whatever, we don't, day or night, we, you know, we're fishermen. It, it, it's either in your blood or is it isn't. So it, you only got one life to live, and I'm glad I lived mine as a fisherman in a while. Yeah, I've got a lot of things I wish would have been done different, but all in all, I think most people have that. And, and I'll tell you what else. I look at pictures from my graduating college class of 68, UCSD, from my high school graduating class of 64, and I look at pictures from our a class reunion, or I look at the obituaries from my college, and I go, what are these people dying for? And I'll tell you what I think it is. They didn't, they didn't follow what made them happy. And, and that, that's why I'm alive and healthy now, is because I, I decided I was gonna, no matter what, where I was educated or what my job was out of college, I was gonna do what I was excited for me, would turn me on. I feel good about it. How about you?
How do I feel? You're doing what turns you on. I, I, I love fishing. Yeah, I, I honestly was just looking at you, uh, looking back through your fishing career, I could see you staring out the window and I thought, <laughs> I hope that when I'm your age, I can look out the window and say the same thing. I loved it, yeah, yeah. it was good. Because honestly, I do love and fishing. And I'm not, I'm not ready to quit fishing. I'm gonna be fishing hard as soon as I get back from my week at the Mayo Clinic, unless they tell me I need a hard face paper, but I doubt any of that. I just feel too good. But but I have a classmate that was the treasurer of a high school class, Russell. And I sent him some pictures of me fishing last year and things I'm doing. I said, send me some pictures. He said, I'll never send you a picture of me. <laughs> you have no idea. He said, I can't believe that's you, Joe. I said, it's, it's hard for me to believe that's you. Because you just stayed so fit and strong? I didn't, I never needed a, look, when I was in Conan and the Iron Man came and I met some young guys like Gary and, and uh, you know, that flew from the mainland to train and stuff for the race. And we were down at the beach fishing and surfing and they were riding bikes out to Hapuna and stuff. I, I just said, okay, I'll buy a bike. Oh, we're not fishing today? Yeah, I'll ride out to Hapuna with you. Spend the day on the beach, ride back to Kona. I, I never, I never really trained for a marathon or trained for a fishing trip or trained for a good day surfing in any of it. I mean, you could kind of call it training, but but I I hate to be what what's the word hedonism is that a word that applies here? I don't really know what it means. But what I'm saying, I never woke up in the morning being happy that I was going to have to do a job that was miserable. Because yeah. I never woke up in the morning with a miserable job. I just miserable jobs, whether it was build another boat or take a head off, change a head gasket on a transmission. I mean, on a on a generator, whatever. I looked at all these jobs as fun. Right. If it wasn't fun for me, what what what? My friend Russell was a PhD economist, worked for the American Petroleum Institute at an office in Washington, D.C. his entire life after he got his Ph.D. And when he retired, I said, send me your retirement picture, and he said, I sent him mine. Like I said, he wouldn't even send me a picture of himself. And he and I, he were like, okay. I, I don't wonder what he looked like. It was, it was after he saw me, he didn't even want to see. He didn't huh. want me to see him. So that's what you get, right? If you have a positive attitude and you're doing something that's fun, look, if, if, if you want to go fishing and you love to catch a fish, changing oil isn't a pain in the ass. Right. Part of the deal. It's part of the deal. It's part of the, the downside of what you accept. But I'll tell you, you get so good at these downside tasks that, that they just click, right? You, yeah. you know, the more you do them, the better you get at them eventually by my age. I hear people that just groan about oil changes. I literally change my oil after every trip and I just go through the motion and it's done so quickly these days that yeah. it just, I don't... Yeah, it's a 10 it's minute a, procedure. Eh, it got everything so dialed Spend in now. Fill, put a plastic trash bag under the filter, eh, drop pump it out. You have your pump there, stick it in, suck the old oil out, put the new oil in, you're finished. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and you could probably attest to this. It's like changing your clothes, changing your uh, underwear. Part, this is part of the deal. This yeah, is what you do when you wake deal. up. This is part of being a fisherman. I mean, I, I would have never come here to be a fisherman if I hadn't decided that that was the fun thing I wanted to do. And the other fun thing about it is you're eating good, you're out in fresh air, 
Uh, you select the people you want to be around. You're not going to a job where you're being around some people that you just can't stand. Right. You know, That's you a don't. Good point. You don't have that cortisol building up in your brain that uh, is telling you life is miserable because I have to go to work every day, and this guy or girl, I just got to put up with them, but they really piss me off being around them. You don't have that mental hassle. Right. I'd rather have to jump off the boat to grab an 800 pound marlin that broke off the hook than put up with some guy at work giving me a hard time for no reason at all. Wound up. Yeah. It's a fun thing. Well, Joe, I think you said it best, man. Thank you so much for your time. This bump there, bro. I, okay. I really appreciate it. And I hope that. Uh, you took pictures of those. I took pictures of you and Joe Jr., the comparison of how close it is, and uh, we'll get this up posted. But uh, thank you very much for your time, man. I really appreciate okay, it. Okay, well, listen, good luck on getting your engine together. Thank you, my friend. Yeah. A lot.